Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Jewanced. We're two Jewish guys. We grew up in America, we live in Israel, and we're looking to challenge popular conceptions, think critically, examine independently, and most of all, seek nuance. Each episode will host a different guest. Together, we'll take a deep dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, technology, food, the arts, business, you name it. A lot of it will deal with the Jewish world in Israel, but not all. Our goal? To create a platform where people share their stories, insights, and visions. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, debate, and discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Greetings out there in podcast land. Welcome to Juance, the show that brings you a nuanced exploration of Israel, the Jewish world, and beyond. I'm Benny Shoulder. That makes me Dan Pfefferman. <laughs> and together we are excited to have another episode, another great episode of the show. Awesome. Uh, before we get going, everybody, I'd like to give a shout out to our audience watching us today on Facebook Live. Thanks for tuning in. For all of you listening on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and all the other podcast platforms, know that there's a live video version of the podcast, which you can check out weekly. It's available on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Podcast. Check it out when we record or watch all our episodes on our YouTube channel, Juanced Podcast, as well as our website, www.juanced.com. Also, make sure to follow us on Instagram. We are at Juanced and on Twitter, at Juanced Podcast. And as always, make sure to subscribe to Juanced on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And we would really love it. It really makes a difference if you leave a five-star review. Awesome. How you doing, man? Dude, doing all right. You look happier than I've seen you in a very long time. Well, you know why? I mean, this is a this is a family podcast, Dan. It's a family <laughs> podcast. I'm excited. I've got an old buddy with us today on the show. We've got reserves major Danny Citronovich, who uh, we served together for a few years. Um, spent a lot of time together, and so for that, and before we introduce him, we're gonna we're gonna make a chaim here on the show. Good times. Open up a new bottle of whiskey. What do we got? We have Jack Daniels Single Barrel, which is, uh, I like it. So we are going to, in honor of this reunion, we're going to pour ourselves a drink here and maybe we'll have a few more. Is that, uh, did you get that on like some sort of a deal on, on Paneco or? I did get it on a deal on Paneco. So we're not a paid, uh, Paneco doesn't pay us, but we both are very big uh, fans of their service. Yeah, um, if they if they're if somebody's listening, if they're listening and they want to pay us to uh, plug their product and their website, now it's cool. It's a um, online liquor store. <laughs> we'll we'll take payment and product. <laughs> they deliver. To, <laughs> look, they deliver to the house. Uh, do they have that in America? Online sure they, liquor stores. They, they got to have online. I mean, come on, man. You had drive-in liquor stores in America back when we were kids. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> let's let's be real. This is nice. It's a nice bottle too. It's a really nice bottle. Um, nice. My kid would break this. I, I've come to realize over the years that uh, value for money, the American whiskeys, you you'll pay less to get a better American whiskey versus the Scotch world, where you have to pay a lot of money to get into the nice scotches. Right, because the 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 American model was always you know scalable, more 
you know, and and then in Scotland, I think it's more, and this is completely, I'm a moron, everybody, don't listen to me. This is completely <laughs> and totally my opinion. Shut not off, your, in any shut data off your screens and don't listen. But it feels like that's like an exclusive thing. Like you want to be from like. Well, that, but also the process in, um, uh, from what I understand, having gone to like five whiskey festivals here in Israel in a row. Have you been to those? Uh, well, at least one. They're yeah. fun. Um, although they got more expensive over the years and then they stopped having them. But uh, the American ones, it takes, because they're using corn, it takes less time to reach maturity. So it's cheaper, but you still uh, okay. get to a high level that it sits in the cask for a shorter time and reaches that maturity. Also, if you do like a smaller cask, it matures it faster because the more of it's in contact with it. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Are we going to drink this? Let's let's do this. Let's, let's yeah, have sure. a Chaim. Good to see Hi. you, Danny. Well, it's been way too me. long. Yeah, exactly. We we like uh, you know sometimes these podcasts are excuses just to get together. So, <laughs> so uh, exactly. Chaim, cheers. I'm not responsible for my you know after this. I know what I'm going to talk about. What we're not telling you is we're going to get you drunk and get all sorts of intelligence secrets out of you. That that's what this show's really about. <laughs> Dan's actually trying to engineer a honeypot situation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Am I the honeypot or are you? I think you might be. <laughs> All right, oh, but for, for real, I mean, to, to, to be honest for a second, I think that it's just been a good week. You got back in the gym. Uh, it feels like things are going in a... A little bit. Uh, let's be cautious, but a, a good a good direction uh, here and around the world. I'll just say that, you know, it's my kid's birthday today. So, Eitan, uh, happy birthday. You're four years old today. Happy birthday, Mazel Tov. Yeah, it's, uh, it's crazy. Um, four years on that kid. Um, but it's, you know, it's a blessing. So... Here we are. My birthday's at the end of this week. Happy birthday to you at the end of the week. Thanks. <laughs> I'm going to be a big boy. It's an interesting thing. I think, um, to, to be serious for a second, we're now the beginning of March. It's March 2nd. It's a new month. And I can't believe that it's already March 2021. This year is going by super fast. I think we all got used to just sitting around and doing a whole lot of nothing at home. But, uh, but, but it, you know, <laughs> time, time goes by pretty quickly when you're having fun. Danny, has this been a crazy year for you also, the yeah. whole COVID year? Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you sit down in your house. But I think you have to look on the good side of things. The fact that you're sitting with your family, b- creating a bond, sometimes too much bond. <laughs> but uh, it's crazy year, but uh, hopefully we're seeing, maybe maybe we're in the final stretch, hopefully. Oh, let's hope. Let's absolutely hope. Hopefully. Uh, I think that for me, it's just, you know, to see that there's some sort of a horizon out there for, you know, the kids are back and gone. I don't know if you have kids or. Yeah, I have three kids. Three kids. How old yeah. are they? Uh, 13, 10, and 6. Okay, okay, so like my kids. Yeah, more yeah. or less. They're about a year older than. Yeah. Than, uh, yeah. Very cool. So to have them back in, in some sort of a framework is actually. Yeah, important. Very important, both on them and, and on, on the home life. Um, you know. Being back at work after God knows how long, almost a year of being on Yeah, on, you're back to work too. Furlough. And, and it's fantastic. Uh, you know, you feel like a normal human being again. Does that mean the tourism industry is kind of starting to bounce back a little bit? So if you want to talk about that for a brief second. Benny, uh, Benny's a tourism professional. Uh, I, I, uh, I, I work uh, as a sales director and content guru and uh, operator for, for one of Israel's leading tourism companies, Kenneth Tours. And uh, like everybody else, since the beginning of the pandemic, we've kind of just been, yeah. you know, not with not anything to do because we're we're shut down. Uh, what's happening now is because of the way that Israel is is not just perceived, but is actually, you know, achieved its its success with the vaccinations in the world. Uh, there's a lot of cautious optimism around the world of travel, uh, not only to get back into the game as soon as possible because people have been sitting at home for months and months and months, 
and people that have uh, you know the urge to travel are you know aching to get out of their houses basically like the rest of us. Um, but Israel is being perceived and rightfully so as a, a one of the destinations that will be first to open God God willing and and safest to travel to. Uh, and you know I can show you. Uh, later on, I'll, I'll show you. There's just a lot of articles and a lot of things. Israel's getting a lot of press right now in the American media on CNN because of the vaccination efforts. Because of the vaccination efforts, its name is getting in the paper. In you know, to 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 differentiate from many many other reasons that Israel <laughs> is always negatively portrayed, portrayed in the press. Uh, this one is working out to the benefit of of our tourism sector because people, when they're looking for a destination to go to. Uh, they're they're thinking now about Israel because Israel is perceived as a safe place to be, uh, and I can say that as far as my work uh, uh, is uh, concerned, it translates to a lot of orders for future business, uh, whether that's uh, families that are you know they wanted to plan that bar mitzvah this past summer with their kid to, to Yerushalayim and it, and it didn't work out because of COVID this yeah. past summer and they want to you know rebook or it's people that are looking for a, an interesting and dynamic destination to go to for the first time in their life and now they've realized that well you know what is we'll check out Israel because they heard about it or it's you know the organized Jewish world that Dan and I talk about so often in the podcast yeah. you know or you know Jewish organizations like the JFNA of Jewish federations around the world that are looking towards the, the the near future, but kind of more distant future towards 2022, 2023, uh, with the with the GA uh, of the JFNA, the General yeah. Assembly, taking place here in Israel in honor of Israel's 75th anniversary. A lot of big groups coming in around that time, um, and then of course the 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 you know the pull of of traveling to the UAE as a part of a trip to the Middle East that combines Israel and the UAE. Right, it's, it's generating so much interest. You know, last night um, this was really cool. So I was invited. By Park Avenue Synagogue, you know, one of the major mm-hmm. major American synagogues in New York, um, they do a virtual travel series, like travel education, and um, so I was asked to give a talk about the UAE, traveling to the UAE and the Abraham Accords, and obviously giving it from an Israeli perspective, and it was really cool. There's uh, a lot of people in attendance, and um, by the way, if, if anyone's listening and they want to invite me to give this, uh, you know, kind of talk to their community or whatever, I'd be happy to do it. But it was just really cool, and there's a lot of excitement, and I think. Um, this is going to be the next big thing for organized Jewish travel for people coming to Israel is also do, you know, three, four or five days in the UAE. Even even a weekend hop to Dubai can be amazing. It's really close by here. And uh, I think people are just really excited to, to be in a welcoming part of the Arab world um, and, and a magnificent part of the Arab world. And um, yeah, so it's really cool. There's a lot of excitement there. You you lived in the UAE for a while. Yeah, uh, roughly three months, something like it's that. It's incredible. Did you get to travel? A little bit, yeah. A little bit. A little bit, yeah. Very interesting, very interesting people and very interesting, I think, uh, surroundings. Uh, but in the end of the day, I think uh, they're very unique. And uh, the fact that, you know, they, they made the first step and uh, uh, towards a peace agreement with us, I think it's, ext- it's extraordinary in yeah. so many ways. And hopefully other countries will come, will join the wagon, like Bahrain, like others, maybe Oman, maybe other states. Maybe really Saudi Arabia. So. Maybe, maybe Saudi Arabia, let's hope so. It depends also on, you know, the Iranian issue. Incredible. And we'll talk about that as well. Yeah, we've got a lot to talk about. All right, so check it out. As you know, Juanced is a listener-supported podcast. We rely on the generous support of listeners just like you to make sure that we're able to continue to deliver awesome content, terrific guests, and interesting perspectives here on uh, Juanced. Uh, so if you would like to make a one-time contribution to the show, you can easily do that on our PayPal account. Even better. Even better. You can make an ongoing contribution to Juanced on our Patreon. 
find out information about how to do that, go to our website, www.juanced.com. And I should say that Juanced, due to the support of listeners like you, is growing uh, leaps and bounds. Dan, I think that we have a running tally of something like, what, 90? 90, we have listeners in 97 countries, and that's not including the Facebook listeners. That's just the audio downloads. That's crazy. Uh, even the dog here in the background really loves Juwans and wants you to support. The dog is begging you to support the show. I think she's begging for for food here. I think she's begging to go for a walk. No, but but seriously speaking, here, guys, if you uh, if you want to support Juwans, visit us today www.juwans.com. We'd love your support, and uh, you can also sponsor us if you have a business or an organization that you'd like to plug to our audience, or you can book us for a. Juanced Live, where we will do a live event, whether virtual or hopefully soon in person, and uh, we can do it. Uh, we've done it already with uh, Meet the Emiratis for a number of Jewish communities, and we can do it on any subject that interests you, and we have a great network of guests that we can uh, bring to your community and uh, facilitate a fantastic conversation with them. Terrific. Uh, so next item on the show is our weekly COVID report coming to you from the capable and uh, always, always on point perspectives of Dr. Natan Davidovich, director of R&D at BrainQuest and a COVID data scientist. Uh, this actually is, is one of the best reports that we've received so far. Uh, and that has nothing to do with the fact that, uh, you know, the mood in Israel is definitely upbeat these days. But he actually writes here, this might be the most exciting scientific news since the pandemic began over a year ago. The first official peer-reviewed study of vaccine efficacy was published a few days ago in the New England Journal of Medicine. It shows very high efficacy of the Pfizer vaccine in real-world conditions based on data from the largest HMO in Israel, looking at 600,000 vaccinated people. Yeah, there's been a lot of reason to be optimistic that the Pfizer vaccine would work well on the controlled clinical trial as well as preliminary data released by Israeli HMOs. But this confirms it. The vaccine prevents both infection and severe illness with rates around 90 to 95 percent. And this is despite the fact that the British mutation accounts for more than 80 percent of current cases in Israel. This is a huge win for Israel and really the world. So why are vaccinated people still recommended to wear masks and maintain social distancing? The short answer is that despite the early successes of the vaccine, there remains a lot of unknowns that will become clearer in the coming months. So even though the vaccinated person might be significantly safer, the vaccine may turn them into an asymptomatic carrier that can still infect other people, hence the need for masks, which I definitely feel is a bummer, but we got to hold on just a little bit while longer with that. Because recent studies suggest that the vaccine does, in fact, reduce the likelihood that you will transmit the virus by 50 to 95 percent. Recognize that's a big swing, but we don't yet know for certain. So to end on a positive note, vaccinated people getting together with each other, like Dan and I, presents an incredibly low risk and is considered pretty safe by most experts. Yeah, and we'll just say that this is, um, and so long as COVID continues... Uh, cooperation we have with Dr. Natan Davidovich, and he was on a previous episode where we dive into COVID and vaccines and mutations and what viruses are. You are invited and welcome to check that out. And with all the misinformation, misunderstandings, conspiracy theories, anti-vaxxers, all this stuff going around, it can be really confusing. And so we are providing this together with Natan as a public service to you. He is a uh, trained uh, PhD in uh, biochemistry. His wife is a PhD in uh, immunology, 
and um, they pour over publicly available data. They know where to look. They know how to analyze it, and they know how to explain it and put it in context and compare it from week to week. And so this is going to be part of the ongoing cooperation yep. that we are um, proud to present on Juanced every week. So bottom line, guys and gals, if you're in America and it's your turn to get vaccinated, please go and do it. Don't hesitate even for a second. And if you're here in Israel and you still have not gotten vaccinated and you don't have a good reason, stay home and never leave. Don't be a jabroni. Please go outside. Get a vaccine today. There's plenty of places you can do it. There's literally no line. Literally no line. (laughs) Literally no line. Just go and do it. And then in two weeks, do it again. And then you'll get a little... uh, Green passport. Green passport that allow you to do a lot of things uh, including possibly, hopefully, really soon here, travel and do all kinds of uh, good things that should incentivize you to do this. If you have any f- questions on the matter, I know you can consult with with us, uh, but contact your HMO and uh, and get vaccinated today. So that's the public service announcement, and back to the show. Dan, uh, why don't you uh, formally introduce our guest? Be glad to. So Major Reserves, Danny Sitrinovich, a senior research fellow at the prestigious Abba Ibn Institute of International Diplomacy, where he's is one of Israel's foremost experts on Iran, and he writes a lot about the nuclear program, which is, uh, even though we're old friends, it's kind of how we reconnected. I'm looking in the paper and I said, oh, I know this guy. He's putting out good analysis on the, the nuclear program. Uh, he's also a Middle East national security and intelligence web expert with over 25 years of experience serving in IDF in various leadership roles spanning from the elite 8200 intelligence unit through um, the research directorate where i also served where we served together um and lastly served in the very exciting role as the deputy intelligence attache at the israeli embassy in washington dc exactly and as it turns out he lives right here in rechavot <laughs> so danny welcome to the show it's good thank to see you, you again oh, thanks for having me man wh- what have you been up to uh since the army <laughs> <laughs> so uh working with companies and also joining noab even a very interesting position we really together under the supervision of Ambassador Prosor. Yeah, Ron so, Prosor, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. fantastic guy. Trying, yeah, fantastic guy and uh, very experienced. And we we trying to uh, my role is we're trying to find ways to weak Hezbollah uh, on the especially around the world. Not exactly to weak to weaken Hezbollah. Yeah, exactly. That's okay. the whole idea. Just to find the spaces that you can really weaken the organization mainly on radicalization efforts, but mm. also on what we call the monitoring issue. You know that Hezbollah is getting a budget roughly, we assume roughly around 20% yeah. coming from uh, um, Shiite diaspora communities yeah. all over the world, but also from what we call narco-terrorism. So the, those things that we are really trying to highlight, not only in Europe, but also in Africa and South America and other places. So we are working hard uh, to transfer every knowledge that we have into something concrete that we can do in front of... Uh, the government all over the world, try again, trying to find ways to weaken the organization. That's awesome. That's awesome. Bef- before we go on, I want to say something also to our uh, those listeners who are tuning tuning in live and those listeners who will be downloading this later. So, uh, of course, we are now, by the way, Benny, we're up to listeners in 97 countries. 97 countries. Um, we have new listeners across South America. Uh, and, of course, Africa and the Middle East and East Asia and South Asia. Buenos dias. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, I don't know if any of them are tuning in live, but for anyone who's tuning in live throughout this and they want to drop questions uh, into the live chat, we have an eye on the live chat, and it's um, it's about 30 seconds or a minute behind the actual conversation, but uh, please feel free to do that or just uh, say hi, say who you are, say where you're calling from, and as we say every week, 
as we say every week, if uh, you are from one of these countries that's not Israel, the U.S., or you know, kind of the major countries that we expect our listeners to be in, and uh, you want to give us a shout out, uh, just go to our Facebook or go to our website and leave us a message: who you are, how you got to our show, where you're from, and we'd love to hear your story, and we'd be happy to share it on the show. Absolutely. And uh, I think that we mentioned Oman earlier. Was Oman one of the countries we that need? Joined? We need someone in Oman. Yeah, every, it, it fills out the map so nicely. Every week, it doesn't make sense. And uh, I'll just have to ask my friends uh, if they can connect us to. If Oman. Your last name is El Busaidi, <laughs> and your na- first name is not Omar. Omar, we're gonna. He's got family there. You know, I know. I know. His yeah. he's related to the royal family in uh, Oman. So I'm saying you got to support your I'll bro. You got to you got to support we'll your to, bro Omar. We'll talk to Omar. I listened to Jew once. He's yeah. a regular guest. Uh, okay, let, let's, let's... Yeah, I want to jump back, actually. You want to jump back? Okay. Yeah. So how did you get started in the uh, intelligence community, in the Israeli intelligence community? Uh, I, I learned Arabic at school, and I was drafted to uh, what we call the Israeli National Singing Unit, isn't it? Uh, serving there for as a linguist for like 10 years. A linguist. So yeah. you were reading emails, listening to phone calls. Uh, whatever you can think watching about. Watching the news. What, whatever you can think about. And then uh, transformed to uh, what we call the traffic analysis officer. Okay, just so reading the information, and then uh, from there on, moved to uh, research analysis division, the, where we met. Where just, we met, uh, did this transformation from uh, the SIGINT world to the analysis world, and then in the end of uh, the, my service, I got lucky and served in Washington as a liaison officer to the DIA. You got very lucky. Yeah, very very lucky. I really enjoyed it. And can I, can I ask you something about sure. the DIA? Of course. I was there on a on a you're visit. Gonna, you're going to have to. Uh, you're going to have to give a, a uh, sort of an index or a definition oh, we will. of the abbreviations. Okay. DIA is, is Defense Intelligence Agency. It's yeah. the American um, Defense Department's intelligence organization. Okay, They have a lot more than we do. Um, and so as uh, in Israel, Aman, which is the intelligence organization, um, is the national intelligence organization. In the United States, they have the CIA and they have yeah. the DIA and yeah, it's NSA. Like, it's NSA. It's actually NSA. what we call the three digits organization. The three digits. NGA. Yeah. And so forth. Yeah. But the DIA, it's like the, they are under the, def- the defense. defense. It's, uh, yeah. They're not national in a way. Not like the CIA. Right. They're under the, under the, def- the Secretary of Defense. So they're like, they, he's uh, what we call intelligence officers in a way. They do the military intelligence. Yeah, doing military, but also strategic intelligence. And it was very interesting because they are very unique guys and unique ex- expertise, and they are very big. Yeah, no, I had a, had a great time working with them, and we had some joint projects together. But when I came to a meeting, they didn't even give us a glass of water. <laughs> well, I think it's. <laughs> I, I'm not sure it's related only to the DA. I think at the end of the day, you know, it's something part of the culture. You're coming it's just crazy. for business, and that's it. When 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 we hear. And, and I, I was in multiple areas of the RB when, and, and I was with the other organizations and I was with the foreign ministry a lot. When we have foreign guests, we, yeah. you know, full spread, coffee, juice, tea, cookies, colas, whatever you want. We get to America, literally not even a glass of water. Like you have to ask them for water. And I think, what did they tell me? They're like, there's a, there's vending, a, there's machine. a vending machine at the end of the hall. That's what they told us. Vending machine. A vending machine. So one of our guys... Had to go out and buy bottles of like they couldn't bring like a pitcher of water. No, it's listen. It's, 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 this is extreme. No, <laughs> most cases uh, they are. I'm telling you, they are like you know they are very strict. They can get down to business. Yeah. You know, so yeah. just continue forward. You'll have coffee and water. Don't worry. But in the end of the day, I think what what they really want to do is really to get into business, and they are. Um, I really 
I like them personally, but I think that I really highly, highly, I think that they are very, uh, they have a lot of expertise in so many different w- yeah, uh, yeah. areas that we are dealing with. So that's, I think that we are earning a lot from this cooperation. Okay, it's, it's not uh, possible that they just didn't like you. Everything's possible. Yeah, I mean, everything is possible. I, I have yet to meet too many people who like me, so it's okay. <laughs> was this like during a time, well, this wasn't during Obama. This was This was during Obama. So could it have been during a time when BB pissed him know. off? Could have been. Anything could have been. Could something. So uh, how much can we break down? Um, how much can we break down for those average listeners who don't know how intelligence works? You mentioned a bunch of different roles you were at. Yeah. I think, you know, you, you be our layman here. You play the layman. Sure. Um, when you think of in the intelligence world, okay, what are you imagining? How does it work? You know, as far as like you have the name's Bond. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but, no. But for really, if for real, if you want to, like, how how do people generally? Yeah, how understand do people it? perceive the world of intelligence? And, okay, I'll take myself. And we'll out explain of this. as much as we can explain here because yeah. I think I think it's interesting for the general. I think that the general public, and I won't specifically say myself because I I know too many people that are that are involved in the world to to say that I'm completely and totally disconnected from all knowledge of it. I think the general public has has. The impression that uh, that the that the entertainment world gives of it, you know, it's it's people that are you know homeland. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, without obviously, there's a, there's there's an element of people that are probably involved in things that are using you know tactics and 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 uh, that you might see in in, in the movies, but uh, ultimately, it's probably just people, a lot of analysts sitting around computers trying to go through lots of different bits and pieces <laughs> sounds of information. Right. Yeah, yeah, sounds, uh, looking, sounds good to me. Looking to put together uh, evidence, kind of like an investigative journalist might, or kind of like how a uh, how somebody would be working as part of uh, you know a, a legal team to try to put together a case of, you know, this is our theory of something, now can we prove it sort of a thing. And then using all different types of tools to try to, to find out okay. if, if that's accurate or not. Uh, but those tools wouldn't necessarily have to uh, abide by by the rules, you know, there's no rules. Whatever you need to do to get that information, it's of certain importance, uh, you do that, and then there's politics that are involved of, of, of this guy and that guy, um, and, and not to overstep because you might hurt, but but in terms of just you know, the, the general public, um, yeah, I mean, there's probably a lot of information out there. I think that people might have, uh, you know, the, the tendency to think that there's all kinds of conspiracies uh, and, and what's really going on. And, and there's, you know, the people that are working in intelligence know what the real deal is and, and the rest of us it's are true. kind of just the useful yeah. idiots. We, we know what the deal is, right? Um, <laughs> exactly. And, I, and, I, and I'm sure that it depends upon what country you're in, of course. I mean, yeah. I think that the, yeah. that the average Israeli's right. uh, 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 imp- impression of Israeli intelligence is different than the American might have of the U.S. intelligence apparatus. That's an interesting... Uh, uh, I think the people uh, in Israel... An interesting topic for yeah, itself, are, right? are, are, are because of their military service being compulsory, they're closer towards yeah. to, yeah. to the process. Plus, we live in an environment that's so actively involved in the region that we're in that it's hard to avoid, you know, seeing the actions of the military and hearing about them and understanding that, uh, you know, there's not, uh, you know, we don't live in a country with a constitution, so there, you know, the, the, the <laughs> civil liberties is not. So, so these things kind of kind of play into it. Uh, versus in the United States, I think people have much uh, more of a disconnect from it. And, and if you're living outside of the, you, know, you lived in D.C., so if you're living outside the Beltway, for example, yeah. you might not understand the organizations and the acronyms. And, exactly. and your version of what goes on in intelligence is probably a little bit closer to my, uh, 
you know, the, the, the joking jest that I said in the beginning when I said the name's Bond. Like, maybe, maybe they think that it's little 007. Maybe they think it's Homeland. Maybe they think it's... Uh, or uh, Born Identity, right? Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, like that, yeah. So, I mean, how much... Uh, Talk only as much as you can, obviously, yeah. but uh, your first job. So the language experts, right? In general, like what are language experts in, in intelligence doing? Well, again, it d depends on the countries that you are focused on. Yeah. For example, if you are like uh, living in South Korea, then you need to know uh, the exact language of Chinese, for example, or the North Korean right. uh, accent. It doesn't, in the end of the day, it's really depend on your target. So here in Israel, of course, Arabic is something yeah. extremely important, but also now Farsi. And Turkish surprise, probably surprise. also, right? Yeah, maybe Turkish, yeah, but that's the thing. But um, so in, in, the, in the end of the day, when you're looking at things so from a linguist uh, perspective, so you need to be not only know the language, but know uh, the culture through the language. Yeah. And it's, it's not that easy, of course, that it sounds because, uh, and you know, when you are talking about interceptions and things like that, then you have to be technologically advanced, but also the ability to analyze what you are hearing or reading. And yeah. that's really a challenge, especially for 18 or 19-year-old kid that just joined the army. It's, so inc it's incredible, really. Yeah. I mean, uh, they, I'm assuming they put you through an intense language course. Yeah, of course. You know, and then you're learning whatever dialect it is you're learning, right? Because uh, a lot, I don't know if people don't know this, the Arabic world has yeah. many, many dialects. And some of them can be very, very different from each other to the point where, uh, which dialect did you learn? I learned a lot. I learned almost huh, everything. Really? Yeah, I learned almost everything. I, I, I got, you know, uh, um, it really depends on the exact arena, but I served in several arenas. So I learned a couple, and I think it's very interesting. Uh, it's an interesting role. You're getting a lot from that. You are adding to your expertise almost every day. But uh, just to continue what you uh, mentioned, I think at the end of the day, it's when talking about intelligence, is the division between the collectors and the analysis. So... First and foremost is how you, you gather the information. It doesn't matter whether you intercepted the phone call or you operate some uh, 007 or uh, you're looking at the internet or you just, re or you just heard Hassan Aswala's speech. And everything is probably important. But yeah, it's all intelligence. It's right. all intelligence. Everything's probably all intelligence. But I think the mo when it comes to the analysis part, this is really the major challenge. So first you have to build the puzzle but you, you never have all the pieces of the puzzle. So you have to fill the blank by your understanding and knowledge of the country, of the area that you are uh, finding your experience in. And this is a major challenge, especially in dealing with a country like Iran. Then it's far away. It's different from the Middle East. It's not a Middle Eastern country. And, so, and surprisingly, not a lot of people in Israel really understand the country. Right. So when you're trying to analyze Iran... It's a double challenge in so many ways. And you learn how it's... And I'm, I'm thinking that the idea where we, we did an excellent job in that, of course, I'm very subjective, but but I think that the challenge is there, especially in thinking, talking about Iran. If, if I could just stop for a second. You mentioned that not many people in Israel understand Iran. and Listeners might find that confusing because yeah. there's so many Iranian Jews. Yes. There's so many Palestinian, you know, Persian Jews yeah, yeah. in Israel. Is, are, are the units... Uh, are there are the ranks filled with people that have you know grown up in Iran? Well, you have almost everything. It's like uh, you know the the Jews that came from the from other Middle Eastern countries on the fifties and sixties. So uh, um, you 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 learn from them a lot because they know the culture. But in the end of the day, it's not only them. Uh, you have to have you know the IDI is a blend of so many many people. Mm -hmm. uh, so of course, if you if you are a linguist, that you need to know Farsi. But when you're doing the analysis. Your first job is not being a linguist, of course. It's being 
or the ability to take all the pieces and build a story. Yeah. And that's... To understand really, them in the context. And, and that's really, listen, when coming to Iran, it's a challenge, a huge challenge. Huge. So, so it's very, a black hole. Very, very bizarre question. Um, you mentioned that the, that the intelligence analysts in Israel focus on languages that are of you know, most relevance to us. So Farsi, Arabic, maybe Turkish, uh, and dialects from around the region. You, you can imagine do, do we, we also have other languages. Well, that's speakers. what I, that my right, question was. Yeah. Is, if, is there ever a possibility where our enemies might communicate in, I don't know, say, the language of, of, of I don't know, some obscure dialect from China? So that we wouldn't understand them, nor have people that could. Uh, if if any of our enemies are listening, have, have I just don't, discovered don't speak in Chinese? Have I just no, discovered the Achilles heel? No, and no, it's not the case. Listen, and they're going to recruit Uyghurs who speak uh, right, uh, right. But for real, like is it like the Aboriginal Australian languages? And like, well, you know what the the U.S. military did in World War II, the story Native of the American. code breakers, yeah, yeah. Navajo, right? Mm-hmm. They, they, yeah. The Navajo speaking dude, no one can understand yeah. the language, so they could just communicate. It's like, it's like, really, yeah. it's like encrypted uh, language. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Don't worry, we'll find the IDI, the Israeli intelligence, find an answer to everything. Don't worry, you yeah. can rest assured on that. At the end of the day, if you don't know the language already, you'll find someone who speaks that language, or you'll find someone who can learn it very quickly. Or you're going to use Google Translate. And that's now. So, I mean, we didn't have that when, yeah. when, even when I was there. But when you started out, we certainly didn't have. Yeah, that. Well, things being developed. Don't worry. You know, it, the IDI is really in the in the front of every technological development related to intelligence. So. I, IDI, for those who, oh, who are unaware, is Israel Defense, Defense Intelligence, or as yeah. we call it in Hebrew, Aman. Aman, exactly. So I, I kind of want to take us, before we get into a deep analysis of what's going on today with, with Iran sure. and, and the strategies and tactics involved, I, I kind of want to go back to the, to, to give a little bit of background and to give our listeners an understanding or an opportunity to understand the relationship better, because Iran is not, it's not like our our, our, uh, our adversaries in, in the Arab world, whereas we started out in 1948 as their enemy. It's Iran was a friend. Mm-hmm. Iran was a friend for many, many. In fact, Iran was a friend of Israel for almost as many years now as it's been an enemy of Israel. Right. Uh, yeah. So P- people it, today might forget that. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. what was the relationship like before, and at what time did people in Israel and in the intelligence community start to realize that there might be a problem? Well, Iran wasn't a friend of Israel; it was really a strategic ally of Israel, and um, it started, like you mentioned, from fifties and sixties, especially with the Shah. And even people tend to forget that we had an embassy over there and a lot of used to fly to Tehran. Yeah. We were building strategic uh, infrastructure we, projects. Yeah, until today. The oil know, projects. So Bonnet, for example, they yeah. build half of Tehran, probably. And until today, until today probably there are buildings built by Solel Bonnet in Tehran. Sure. The thing is that um, you ask when people notice. I think that it was very hard to notice even when the Shah left his office. It goes back not only to Iran, it goes back to the intelligence ability to identify who, to identify revolutions. And it is very hard because sometimes it's very hard to imagine that things will change. Same thing goes to Egypt, same, same, same thing goes to, our, to other places. You know, when they ask Ehud Barak, how come the IDI didn't know nothing about the Egyptian uh, revolution, he said... Listen, ask Omar Saliman. He didn't know nothing as well. And Omar Saliman was the head the of head the Egyptian the, yeah, yeah. So it is very hard to identify. And you know... Look at the fall of the Soviet Union. Yeah, yeah Nobody saw it coming. Nobody knew that this is, tomorrow the Soviet Union it is very was going to collapse. It is very hard to... Uh, when thinking in the intelligence chair to forecast things. All the time when people ask me difficult tech questions, I keep telling them, listen, I forgot my crystal ball at home. It's not like, I'm not a prophet when you're dealing with intelligence. But sometimes you need to be brave enough to say what you think 
um, and it's not easy as well. But we, we turned back to Iran. It was very hard also for us and for the Americans as well. You know, pe- people always, re- always remind us the visit of Shah in, in the, the U.S. like a couple of months before he fell. And, he, and the Jimmy Carter president said, Iran is the island of stability, blah, blah, blah. And, and it wasn't island, it wasn't stability. So I think the lesson of Iran really teaches us the, to be humble, dealing with intelligence, but also be wary that things can change yep. in a rapid way. So 1978 comes around, the Iranian Revolution. 1979. Yeah. starts yep. to take place. And uh, So one important thing about revolution, it started not as Islamic revolution. And that's important thing right. because we talk about right. to the, even today. The, actually what, what happened is really the Islamists over there really occupied the really true civilian uh, protests that came and were against the Shah and the Shah. Yep. Uh, uh, and we, we all know what happened in, in Iran during those days. The, you know, uh, everything was problematic, to say the least. You have the Savak over there, you know, the secret the police walking, torturing people and so forth. And so... And, and it, they were modeled after our intelligence. Yes. They were that, again, yeah. Again, we turn back <laughs> we, we to... We helped them build their the, secret the, intelligence yeah, apparatus. According to our... Yeah. Again, the same thing. But which, which is probably a point of contention as to why Iranians yes, today dislike until today. Israelis. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it, we turn, even, even today, we turn back to that. Because the Shah continued continue to be in the eyes of the Islamic Revolution leaders as something like, you know, like a red carpet in so many ways. But we turn back just to that. So actually they occupied the revolution. They didn't think, you know, most of the people that came to the street didn't think that they would get at the end of the day, the Vilayat al-Fakir, you know, the, the, the control of the reign of the, of the cleric. They didn't, know, they didn't think about that. Yeah. And we turn back to student protests. Yeah. There, there were communists. Communists. Yeah, the yeah, yeah, it was exactly. just a popular uprising. Bernie yeah. bros. <laughs> you know, but, but Khomeini knew how to, when we turn back to France, he knew how to capitalize on, on, the, on, on the situation, on the vacuum. They were very organized and they actually conquered uh, Iran and, uh, and we are where we are today. When did Iranian? When did the Islamic Revolution begin to pose a strategic threat to Israel? Well, I will ask. Uh, well, if really they are a strategic threat to Israel, and the thing is, I don't think that Israel is really at the top of the list. First and foremost, you have to remember you have the U.S. That's merely what we call the big Satan, and of course Saudi Arabia. Now, I'm not saying that Israel is not important. I'm going to talk about that. But Iran, even let's talk a little bit about the, how Iran maybe think or the leaders of Iran think. Because why it's so important? Because when you're serving in the intelligence world, you need to get into the head of your adversary. Don't think of what you might you do or, or might done in, in certain, certain places or ac- actions. Think what your adversary will do or doing. Right. You have to learn to see the world through their eyes. Through their lenses. And, and this is you know, what good intelligence agencies do. And, and, you know, one of the reasons why why we wanted to have this conversation today is because things are heating up, obviously, with Biden and with the yeah. JCPOA. And you read the public discourse, and it's just so shallow. Yeah, And it's just so Iran's evil. Iran, yeah. They're anti-Semites. They're Nazis. They're going to kill us. They want the bomb. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and it's just so much more complex than yeah. that, right? So, uh, you're absolutely right. And we turn back to that. So a couple of basic things when talking about Iran and, and, and what you asked. Iran is a paranoid country. They, in their mind, may be similar to other countries in the Middle East, surprisingly. In their mind, if there won't be any Islamic control, Islamic uh, or the Wilat al-Fakir, what they call the control of the highest cleric, the Ayatollah, then there won't be Shiite around the world because nobody will defend them. 
So for them... It sounds familiar. Yes, very familiar. <laughs> so for them, the issue of uh, protecting Iran is crucial. It's absolutely crucial. And, and because of that, they are not raw state. They are not crazy. Although people tend to think like that. They really realpolitik country. But it, of course, there are uh, people who expert think differently. My thoughts, and uh, after I studied them for a long time, that they are every action that they are doing, even retaliation, even offensive one, they are doing from a defense mentality. They just want to keep away the threats. And they have a lot of threats, you know they have they still remember. days when the American intervened in their politics. The, the 53 overthrow e- exam, of Mossadegh. Mossadegh. Exactly. Yeah. They still remember the, the, the problematic relations that they have with Russia, Soviet Union. Which also, I think in the 20s, yeah. Uh, yeah. literally took over Tehran yeah. and, and forced them to do, you know, so, to do Russia's bidding. So when you're talking about Iran and what Iran can do, for, you have to remember the basic mentality. They're, they're paranoid, they're very paranoid, and they, they all the time think how they can better secure the future. And we'll talk about the, the nuclear program. Yeah, let's get, let's get to that a little later. Because yeah. I think, I think to, to have this better understanding of Iran and its mentality, uh, its raison d'etre, I mean, for, first of all, I mean, for those who aren't aware, the listeners who aren't aware, Iran's the only major Shia country in the world. And uh, there are other Shia pockets. Iraq has Shia pockets. Syria, uh, Lebanon has, has oh, a we, we just lost our Lebanese listeners. Or you not. offended them. It depends what, who they are. They think that they're major. That you just offended them. Are they, are they Christian? Are they no, no, they're Sunni? Shia. They we, Shia? We tested we that. We tested it? Yeah. yeah. We have like one listener in Lebanon. Oh, nice. I don't know who it is. It's actually Nasrallah. Nasrallah was a listener. He's a classic nuanced listener. If it's you, send us an email. You can just say that your name is Kenny. Hassan we'll Nasrallah, send us an email, wink, wink, cough, cough, whatever you need. We just want to know if we'll send you a t-shirt. <laughs> He's we'll, like, I'm dying to convert we'll to Judaism, but we'll you'll never accept me. <laughs> we'll send you some Juan's swag to your bunker yeah. in Beirut. I want to defect. Maybe he wants to drink whiskey. <laughs> oh, please, we will pour you a big glass. It's funny, there's this, there's this show that comes on, or like there's a promo for it every once in a while about this, uh, this Lebanese Muslim that converts to Judaism and moves to Israel and becomes a Hasid. And yeah, it's yeah. A, and I, yeah, I don't remember his name. It's like Moshe something or other. A real or fake story? No, real, real story. story. Yeah, real, real story. Really? Yeah. Former Hezbollah fighter. Somehow, you probably, this is well, our perception of intelligence. You yeah. probably have a better understanding of how he's here than I do. Um, but now he's like living as like a breast of Hasid in Sfat. Yeah. Really? Crazy story. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, so let's, get him, let's get him on the show. It would yeah. be fascinating to get him on the show. But I think that, uh, I think that, I don't know. First off, I don't think he speaks English. The, uh, if you if you speak English Moshe <laughs> the breast of Hezbollah <laughs> please uh, reach out to us no, but, but for I'm real trying to think of a play so, on words with Breslov and Hezbollah yeah. don't think too hard <laughs> back to what back to what we were saying <laughs> yeah. though it's it, it, it is interesting though that it's it's um you know it's this field that and you said it you know is it a strategic threat yeah. there's this perception here in Israel and the more you get into the very let's call it you um, You know Israel's right at all costs crowd uh, the more you'll hear that it's this big strategic existential is the word that's thrown it's an existential threat to the yeah. state of Israel's stability and, ex- and, and and existence obviously and you know uh, I mean we have politicians here 
Uh, they make our, a living our, off it. Our prime minister's made his career. He's off made of, entire career off it. Off of off of Iran, uh, and his relationship with the Americans is based on his, you know, uh, purported, uh, you know, I must be the savior of the Jewish people against uh, Iranian aggression yeah. uh, at all costs. But do you think? Uh, do you think Iran is an existential threat? Well, the thing I'm telling the thing is that I'm not saying that Iran is not dangerous. It's not dangerous to Israel and not dangerous to Israel. Uh, uh, I don't know uh, future, but let's when we're thinking about you know people tend to think okay Iran want to destroy Israel blah blah blah. So I keep asking people, okay, what they've done in order to destroy Israel? So yeah. Like they they, they the Islamic Revolution is like 1979. Yes, they are sending a lot of weapons to our rivalry all over the Middle East, but in their mind, as I analyze that. Mm-hmm. They're doing that in order to deter us from attacking them. So, and that's one thing. So, so you don't think you don't think? And, and my dad's texting me right now. My dad uh, works worked and worked for Yuani for a long time, um, and, and so uh, United Against Nuclear on kind of a yeah. American lobbying group. Yeah. So uh, let me just continue one thing yeah. about, about shout out to Bob and about the nuclear issue that it's also extremely important. At the end of the day, when people when we're talking about the major threat that Iran poses on Israel, we're talking about uh, nuclear capabilities. Also, yeah, also may, mainly. I'm not sure. saying, of course, the, the the fact that they are sending arms to Hezbollah is one important thing, but the other thing, of course, is the nuclear issue. So let's just for two minutes let's dismantle the nuclear issue. First, the if real you qu- can dismantle the nuclear issue, uh, let's try. Let's try. I'm telling you, let's try. But but the first questions that come to mind is why Iran even tried between. The end of the 19s until 2003, what we call the Ahmad appointment. Why did they try to acquire nuclear capabilities? A military nuclear. Cap- military right. nuclear why? Why they try to uh, uh, to reach for this kind to reach this yeah. goal? So the question, of course, if you ask most of I don't know Israelis, whatever they'll tell you, because the first thing they want to do is want to build the bomb and send it to Israel and destroy Israel. Destroy right? Israel, right. right? The prophecy of the Mahdi. Yeah, and prophecy of Mahdi and so forth. So unfortunately, the answer is no. They didn't want to do that. Maybe, again, we don't know. We're talking about hypothesis and things like that. But concrete issue is the fact that they wanted to acquire this bomb because it's related to what I said about the paranoid. uh, It's like North Korea. They want the ultimate ticket to secure the survival of the Islamic revolution of Iran. Of the revolution, of of the the regime. Of the regime, because in their mind, the regime protects all the Shiites. Right. I'm not saying, of course, if they'll have some in, in the future a uh, bomb, it will change dramatically the strategic uh, uh, situation isn't, of Israel. I'm not saying that we need to encourage that. But first and foremost, the idea behind the bomb was to secure the future of the revolution. To, I mean, de- to deter and to the deter kind of outside threats. Th- yes, that because they assumed, because they saw what happened to other countries. Yeah. They assumed at the end of the day, if they won't have this kind of ultimate uh, ticket, then. U.S. can invade Russia. It leaves them vulnerable. Exactly. And I said North Korea before because it's almost the same thing, right? Yes and no. They want to be taken... Well, North Korea, there seems to be more of a push that we want to be taken seriously on the world stage. Yes. Stop treating us like we're... I'm telling what the the major... People tend to to say that they are uh, two of a kind, but not exactly. And why? Because North Korea is an isolated country. Iran can't uh, can be isolated because right. their connection, economical connection, and everything, even the culture one, the con- they can be uh, isolated. Sure. That's why the sanctions really hurt them because it's really disconnected from the Iranian from the rest of the world. That's why they were felt betrayed, and that and that's why and, and that's why I think that they got pushed into the JCPOA in the beginning. 
the ma- it was the major incentive of them to do that. To end the sanctions. Yeah. Because it was really hurting them. Yeah. It really took a toll on its, yeah. on its economy. But, but one on other thing, just to, uh, to, uh, just to wrap the, the nuclear issue, Iran really tried to acquire a nuclear bomb until 2003. We know that today. We know from Why this stop? They stopped because they were afraid they got caught red-handed. They stopped because um, the U.S. invaded Iraq and they thought they're going to be the next one. Yeah. So they stopped and they changed the strategy. But it's important to say why it's important to highlight the fact that they stopped in 2003. Because when we're talking about, you know, building a nuclear weapon is the combination of fissile material and what we call the weapons group. Guys who really know how to take the fissile material and build it into a bomb and put it into a missile or airplane or whatever. Is it, is it really complicated? Yes. Yes, it's really complicated, but... I mean, the science doesn't seem very complicated. No, the thing is, you know, that people tend to think that if country wants to achieve, acquire nuclear ability, they will, at the end of the day, they will acquire. But it's not that easy, and it's definitely not that easy to do that without nobody notice you. And why it's so important? Because we are in 2021. The Ahmad project ended in 2003. So we're talking about 18 years that the the weapons group, as we call it, headed by our famous Fakhizadeh, Uh, didn't Th- actually this was the nuclear uh, scientist yeah, the slash IRGC general who was assassinated yeah. a month so, ago. So actually, they, we assume uh, that they didn't continue their work. And why it's so important? Because even if Iran miraculously will have enough fossil material and try to, to uh, bypass any monitoring uh, regime, then they still need to have those expertise. And they don't have it. It will take a long time. Actually, the IDI assess, they will take... From the moment they will decide that they want to have... Right, from when they make a political <laughs> yes, decision. Yes, exactly. Meaning that they didn't take that. They take the decision yet. They, they have to wait at least two years. And this is maybe may may be optimist regarding that. So why it's so important? Because when you are in Iran, so afraid from being uh, penetrated uh, from other countries because they saw what happened. Everything that they built eventually was ex- exposed to the world. Like Natanz, like Fodor, they all those the enrichment facilities... So when you have like two years, you'll think very hard where they want to go this path. Now, so what each one is trying to do, they're trying to use their, their current enrichment capabilities in order to create some sort of a nuclear deterrence. And they want to preserve the option for the future. But for now, they st- as we know for, uh, that they stopped the actual Ahmad project in 2003. And we'll have to Th- see... That's what the weaponization problem. Weaponization problem. They yeah. uh, continue in the enrichment. Right. And again... So, so let's, let's, bre- let's yeah, break let's, it down. There's, yeah, exactly. there's from, from my understanding, there are three components of a nuclear weapons program that makes it, a, that makes it viable in terms of its ability to be a military threat. There's the enrichment which is, we're talking about the enrichment of fissile uranium into, into uh, yeah, weapons. Oh, plutonium, it depends right. what, which capacity. Uh, yeah. There's, the, there's the, uh, the, the weapons program itself, which is the delivery system, which is building a warhead and, 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 and putting that bomb, that, that device into the warhead, and there's yes. the delivery system, which is the missile. Exactly. Missile or airplane. Yeah, right. yes. yeah. Exactly. Those are three components that actually Iran tried to acquire until 2003, and then they stopped because of the reason that we mentioned They before. stopped all three? They stopped at the end. They, they continued the enrichment. They tried to uh, also to build the plutonium route through the reactor in Iraq, but they had a lot of uh, problems in that. So they, they tried to do a track, but they got stuck in the plutonium route. So the enrichment, of course, they built two enrichment, very uh, enhanced enrichment facilities, in one in Tanz and one in Fodor near the city of Qom. And, uh, and I think that uh, at the end of the day, they really uh, got advanced 
they got obstacles. <laughs> they had a lot of obstacles but build, when they build the capabilities, but also they, they encounter some uh, cyber attacks and things like that. But they manage to overcome that. And it really shows the capability and why it's so important. Because once you have the knowledge, then it, you can't raise it. Even if we'll wake up tomorrow and there won't be no Natans, no Fordor, everything is inside the head. So they were able right. to build that uh, uh, again. So w- this is why we're talking about the Iranian issue. It's not that easy. There is no concrete or easy answer to this solution. Right. It's very hard. At the end of the day, I mean, we'll get to this kind of at the end also, but at the end of the day, you have to convince them that yes. it's not in their interest. I wrote in my uh, exactly in my master's work, I did an analysis. Uh, this was my, my thesis in my uh, non-proliferation class that I took. Uh, at Tel Aviv, and I wrote um, every single nuclear program that was advanced and then stopped. And I broke it down into categories, and at the end of the day, the one thing that's clear is they have to make a decision. Yeah. And and, and all the countries, you know, they were sanctioned and this and that, and um, but, but they have to make that calculus themselves. And even if you attack, you know, Iran militarily, right, you're just going to set them back. And then they're going to be even more determined. Exactly. Because oh, we, we just got attacked. Right. That's why yeah, and, 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 and this right? was something that I wanted to address a little bit later on. But, I mean, you're getting but, there but now. Let's, and, let's and we'll, hold we'll off on back that. To because, it. Yeah. So, so, okay. So now we're, we're, we're 2003. They've stopped their program yeah. because they felt like people were getting on to, you know. Yeah. Get, the, fig, the program was out. exposed. And remember, America just invaded Saddam Hussein's Saddam Iraq. Iraq over claims that they had a nuclear program. Exactly. So they're like, you know, we should probably cut this cut this stuff out. And then, uh, you know, there's like this hole that, that, that comes in my mind where it's like, I remember everyone was very, very concerned about Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. Yeah. And uh, he was <laughs> yeah, very uh, messianic in his approach. Yeah. And then, and then still he, and he's, I'm sure he was. I like uh, him. And still is. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I remember the, there was like ads on buses with his name as a target <laughs> for homeless.coio and, and whatnot. But... Uh, <laughs> Fast forward a little bit. Uh, it, it's it's now I think 2014, and and the Obama administration. Well, no, before that, you got to jump back before that. So, yeah. 20, so, so where should we go? Go. Yeah, well, I think that look, between two of us, things, Iran, Iran, you know, felt that it has the right to enrich. That nobody can tell her not to enrich because for them they are superpower. They're entitled to rich uranium because they have a civilian excuse for that. They have civilian excuse, of course. Again, what what's the civilian excuse? Uh, because they need uh, the for the re, uh, they have experimental reactor that they need to. Uh, I'm not going to get into that, the roads and things like that. They, but this they, is kind of where the world starts calling bullshit. Yeah, yes. Because it's like what? Okay, you have the right to. You're the you're you're like energy independent. You have more, more oil than yeah. than God. Why you're going to tell me that you need a nuclear no, it's, energy? It's for, yeah, for them. What's for them, the excuse is very you know it's very hard to present it. But they have some sort of you know. They have some sort of an excuse they can show. Of course, the main meaning of the program was to create a security uh, deterrence, like I mentioned, that people will know that Iran will have the ability yeah. to acquire a nuclear weapon, even if they don't have to, even if they are like two years uh, uh, apart from uh, uh, acquiring this capability, but people will tend to think that they have this ability. So keep master your, and uh, what they thought, we'll keep master our enrichment capabilities. Build our plutonium, uh, well, maybe, maybe not, but we'll try to do that. At the meantime, what we'll do is we'll uh, demand the world to acknowledge the fact that we have the right to enrich. And maybe in the future, if circumstances will force us to do so, maybe we'll turn back to the military route. We'll, we're keeping Fakhizadeh and others. 
again, it's not like 2003, but maybe then we'll have this kind of capability. But the problem is that they are suffering from the sanctions. So Ahmadinejad, we used to call him the, the true Zionist because he really raised the issue of Iran, you know, all his behavior and, 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 and speeches and things like that. Actually, he worked really against Iranian interests in so many ways. And actually, it was... The, nobody it was like the Iranian Trump. Yeah, uh, I don't know. <laughs> Listen, it, it, people didn't like in Iran, especially not the Supreme Leader. So when the Supreme Leader doesn't like you, then you are in a yeah, big, in a big trouble. So it, look, the president in Iran is an important position because the president is really run the daily day lives of the Iranians. Iran doesn't have like a prime minister. So the president is essentially the prime yeah, minister. Exactly. And, and the, supreme, the supreme leader actually makes all the real decisions. And the supreme right? leader most of the day is not, you know, like dealing with nuclear issues. It's like either, you know, is a, a major cleric, is an ayatollah. I, I really think that they need to like get better marketing. That, that name supreme leader kind of just makes it sound like it. more nefarious. It's like, It's like him and like Kim Jong-un are like the, the only supreme leaders left. You know, if Bibi could become the supreme leader, But he would do point, it in right? a second, right? Of course he would. Trump would have been the supreme leader. I mean, you just hold your horses. It might happen. Leader. <laughs> We might get there. But he's the supreme leader. And he, wait, but he didn't like Ahmadinejad? He liked Ahmadinejad. But the thing is that, um, you know, in the 2009 election, when the Ahmadinejad ran for office for the second time, there was the riots. In Tehran, and he was forced the, to support him because he didn't want the, 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 green, the green revolution, the revolution, right. the Musavin Kauvi, uh, to one of them to become president and so forth. So he was forced to to, to support Ahmadinejad. Ahmadinejad was, was elected, but then 2013, finally another election, and who got elected? Mr. Hassan Rouhani. Rouhani, and that I think really an important, uh, a huge uh, issue in Iran. And why? Because Rouhani, he was he really I think is a true. Uh, competent politician that really know the business in Iran. And I think the most important... He's, a, he's a pragmatist also. He's, a, he's what we call a conservative pragmatist. Well, he's not can, like pragmatist can in I, a way. Can I ask a question? He's, he's a conservative pragmatist, but, but as an Iranian pragmatist, I wonder, is how much do they embody the impression of what we think they are in terms of their religious beliefs, fundamentalists? Like, uh, are, are they are they wearing the cloak because they're deep deep men of faith no, that, uh, and that's their credentials for being yes, in power? And, uh, or is it, I have to wear this disguise in order to be elected I have to say one, one important thing regarding what you said. Why we call all the time Iran the Ayatollahs? Because we have something in our mind, like, you know, the crazy clerics that are trying. I think that they're crazy. But, but first and foremost, not all of them are Ayatollah. <laughs> Most of them are not. For example, Rouhani is like Khujat al-Islam. It doesn't matter, but they're not all Ayatollahs. But For them, the religious is extremely important. Extremely important. But remember, at the end of the day, they have to take decisions that serve one important target or purpose. And that's how I preserve the revolution. So if for now, I will wait and not do nothing, I will the, do the that. The Islamist revolution. The Islamist revolution. Yeah. If I need to attack someone, I will do that. But, but the most important thing is be cautious. Take the right steps. So returning back to the president, why the president is so important? Like, because what, as we mentioned, he's running the daily day life of the Iranians. And he has approach, of course, uh, uh, some sort of a, what they call a clean approach to uh, the Supreme Leader's office. So we can influence him. So usually when the guy like Ahmadinejad come or, or Katami, they don't know nothing. They, they are very, um, they really don't know the system. They were, they were newcomers to national yeah, politics. Well, Ahmadinejad was the mayor, he was of, mayor Tehran. of Tehran. Yeah, and Katami was uh, like the, uh, he was a minister before, but education minister or something like that. 
but he really know, didn't know the business. So when Rouhani came, he was president that really know the bits and bytes of Iranian politics. And why it's so important? Because Rouhani understood one important thing. If you want to make Iran flourish, you have to leave the sanctions. And to leave the sanctions, you get, have to give some sort of a concession in your nuclear program. To the West, right? To the West. Yeah. That's the thing. And that's the pragmatist that's approach. That's the pragmatist approach. Now, I'm not saying, listen, Rouhani is not a Zionist. He's not a Zionist. Actually, I don't think he cares about Israel much. And that's another, returning back to what you asked let's, in the let's beginning. Get, let's get to that in a second. Yeah. I just want to clarify something for our listeners here. When we talk about concepts like radicals, conservatives, pragmatics, reformers, right? We talk about Khatami, who was a reformer back mm-hmm. back in, in 2009. Can you just explain all of those terms within the Iranian context? Because um, uh, from my recollection and from my understanding, first of all, all the true liberals are not even allowed in the political space in yeah. Iran. Um, so we're all we're automatically dealing with people who are vetted to participate in public life. Exactly. And the bar of, you know, it, it goes from like pretty conservative to like really conservative, right? So exactly. Can you just break that down for us? Exactly. Um, really in a natural. Um, if you are, like Dan said, if you are a formist, you can be elected to any formal office in Iran. Again, there is a vetting process that the, if you want to run for from mayor until to become president, then at the end of the day, you have to ha- to support the revolution. So you are conservative. It doesn't matter. So all those in office are conservative. But within those, Iran is not a monolith. Within those conservatives, there are the, what we call the hardliners, the IRGC, Revolutionary Guard. We have those very extreme clerics. Those who think that Iran needs to use force in order to uh, make sure that, or use force against their true enemies, like Saudi Arabia, like Israel, like US and others. But they are not the majority, at least not for now. The majority, at least now, and especially when Rouhani is still uh, president, are what we call the moderate conservatives. Those really want to preserve the revolution. They don't think that ending the revolution is it's a good thing to do. On the contrary, they want to preserve revolution, but they think that they can do that by building connection to the West, by looking at Iran as a, some sort of a lighthouse to all the countries, not supporting organizations like Hezbollah and others. But for, for them, the Iran is, first thing is Iran. And so, the, so, so there are, there, there is a uh, branch of Iranian leaders who believe that the key to preservation of the revolution is bridges of normal behavior towards the rest of the world, whether they be the West or the Far East or Africa or whomever, that if, if we stop our posture, posturing the country as a threat to them, that will be the best course of action to preserving the revolution. They'll leave us alone. Absolutely. And one, one other important thing that I want to highlight now is the fact that the Middle East is not the most important geographical uh, sphere that Iranians are looking or prioritizing. On the contrary. What is? So what is, yeah. So yeah. when we're looking, there are several important areas. First, of course, what we call the Persian or the Arab Gulf, uh, because of economical and other, you know, and other uh, strategic uh, uh, circumstances or, uh, or reasons. And, and, and if you, you have, and if you go, to, if you go to the UAE, call it the Arab, Arab Gulf, yeah. not the Persian Gulf. Exactly, they will get very upset. Yeah. And <laughs> the second thing, of course, is Asia. Rouhani was really keen of enhancing the cooperation, the economical cooperation between Iran and 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 Asia and Asian countries, especially China, and. Of course, you have all the. Uh, that's another important uh, venue, and of course, you have, of course you have South America, Venezuela, and all those countries, and Africa. 
But so the Middle East as itself, I'm not saying it's not important, but it's not, not the most important thing. So why it's so important? Because when you are looking at that from an Israeli standpoint, it looks like that Iran is really invested in the Middle East and prioritizing that. But when we're looking at the Iranian prioritization, it's not the most important thing. So h- hang on a second. So, and we had uh, uh, one of our listeners even send this question. It seems to us here, right? And here I'm going to be... Uh, not what I used to be, but just I'm going to be a regular Israeli here. Um, it seems like they're obsessed with us, right? Yeah. Are, are we so vain? <laughs> or are they, you know, like, how does that song go? I am so vain. I bet you well, think we pr- the we song probably is about, about you. We, we probably think Hezbollah is all about us. But that's um, that's how we are with lots of things. Israelis love to oh, think Oh, we're that. so self-centered here. Um, for, first of all, I mean, I, they, I, I know, uh, and this is public information, they invest billions billions of dollars, even though their economy is hurting, in supporting our enemies here, Hezbollah, in building up their presence mm-hmm. in Syria, the Palestinian extremist groups in Gaza, um, and, and even there have been reports over the past few years of of starting to arm Iraqi proxies to, to yeah. even be able to hit us in, in Yemen. You're saying that even though they're doing all this, this is not their priority? No, this is not a priority. First, the priority, talking about defense-wise, is building Iran capabilities. First and foremost, you know, missiles, Maybe yeah. now aircraft uh, b- buying them from uh, after the lifting of the embargo, buying them for Russia or China, or whatever. Supporting the the militias, what we call the, the Iranian threat network, uh, is an important. It's not something not important. Why it's so important? Because Iran, you know, again perceptions. We think they want their street cred. Yes, listen, we have like the perception of the Iranians running into the minefield in Iran Iraqi war, right? And they are sacrificing the sons and things like that. They did that. They, they did that. But in the 80s, things right. have changed in Iran. And the other day, they want to sacrifice, not their own. They want to sacrifice the last, what we call their last Shiite Arab standing. Yeah. And the, so they're supporting them because they know that if they will build some sort of what we call the deterrence belt around Israel, then Israel will think twice whether they want to attack Iran to or attack not. Iran. So you're saying, you're saying all of this, and, and, and you know, we, we talked about this, I think, uh, in a previous episode um, that we had uh, with Colonel Udi Eventhal, who, who is a mutual friend of ours. Um, you know, I've certainly written about this. Uh, I'm sure you have, but uh, they they support proxy groups. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, the biggest one, the most the most Hezbollah. formidable one, is Hezbollah on our yeah. northern border. Now they're doing it in Syria, and, and what's interesting is something you just pointed out. They're not sending their own people to go fight and die anymore. Oh. They're they're doing it with you know I'm I'm gonna say this tongue in cheek expendables, right? People that they don't mind if they get killed fighting Israel, but but it's interesting because they're not which are, which are never. Persians. They're not Persians. No, they're Arabs, they're Afghanis. They are Shi- they're Shiites coming from Pakistan and so forth. Yeah. Listen, that's really important. And uh, you know, <laughs> there's a funny story. I'm not so funny, but it's an impo- I can tell you an important story that really highlights this fact. In, I think it was 2015, roughly, the Iranian really tr- sent their own troops into Syria. They said, okay, that because Iranian didn't fight, uh, you know, f- from 1989, they thought maybe we're going to use Syria as a battleground, then maybe we can train our forces. The forces were slaughtered. So when the the Iranian knew that it was <laughs> they weren't going to return this experience. So they're going to support the, the proxies, but they're not going to send their own troops. So does this mean that does that signal to you that it is not a high priority issue for them? Um this is not a high priority issue for them because the Middle East as its own is not a high priority. It's a priority, but not a high priority. Mm. And that's important. I'm not saying that, uh, actually, I even say even th- further, 
you can see, you know, uh, from the speeches of uh, leaders of uh, the IGC commanders and things like that, they have a lot of criticism of people in the regime itself, probably Rouhani and others, that are really do not think that uh, they need to support those, mil- those groups. And that's really highlight the fact, again, that Iran is not a monolith. Iran is not, they have the thinking all the time, what is the best way to secure the future? And sometimes they think that securing the future, some of them think, They're not supporting Hezbollah, for example. We have a... Uh, somebody was trying to call yeah. us here. <laughs> That's the, the problem, people, when you're using Facebook Live is that you're actually logged into a Facebook account. So if somebody <laughs> wants to call you on Facebook, they're, they're going to be able to do that. So uh, Do people call you often on Facebook? Uh, that one guy does. Dan Mogul, we're doing a podcast. You should listen to the podcast. Check us out. Facebook. Uh, make sure you subscribe. To make sure you subscribe. <laughs> you better give us a five-star review now. Yeah. <laughs> so so we're turning back to that. So when you're looking again, looking from that, and, and that's extremely important. When looking from Israel standpoint, it seems like they run the most important thing. When looking from Tehran standpoint, Israel is not the most important thing. There are other things on the pile, like the U.S., like Saudi Arabia, like others. And that's extremely important. And why it's so important? Because I don't think, looking at Israeli strategy, we don't want to be at the head, the spear of the confrontation against Iran. Yeah. There are other players that need to do that, like the U.S., like others. Because when we're talking about the connection between us and Iran, I think that, true, we are in the good coalition in a way, in a, in a way but we don't need to lead the, pi- the, to lead the pact. We have, we, have Iran, we have U.S. and others that the Iranians think also as the one that lead this kind of a camp. So let them lead that and not get intervened. I don't think it's for our best interest to lead this um, objection or opposition against Iran. Okay, so we, we like to say in Hebrew, Ad Khan, you know, up well, until... Up oh, until this, you mentioned something that I, I want to just clarify and understand even here. If Israel is not the top of their list of priorities... Um, And you said the U.S., Saudi Arabia, and others. Let, let's can we unpack that for a second? Yeah. So, again, turning back what we mentioned before, the U.S. is really the biggest rivalry in, in the Iranian uh, mind. Why? Because the U.S. has the ability, the military ability, to really uh, change the regime in, to cause a regime change in Iran. That's what the Iranians think. That's why they are the biggest rivals. And Saudi, of course, because, you know, they're the leading of the Sunni world and so forth. So, we so that, that's a Sunni-Shia rivalry? This is the Sunni-Shia and this one. And is the U.S. The is the? Superpower rivalry. And because Iran think that they are the superpower. Do they really think they're a superpower? Yeah, they really think that. They really think. Like that a super, like, the, like there's the U.S., there's the Soviet there's Union like or Russia. Russia, China, Maybe China and, and then us. Um, they, yes and no. Uh, They know that they have a lot of dominance on the regional front, and, and no, they're not like Russia and, and U.S. But in their mind, that returning back, for example, the right to enrich. In their mind, they're a superpower, so they have the right to enrich uranium. They're a superpower, so they have the right to do this and that. They have the right to buy weapons. So in their mind, they want to be strong. They think of them as strong. But as probably we'll, we'll mention in the you know, future conversation, they have a lot of problems within domestic one, economical yeah. one, that's really causing a lot of problems w- among those who support the revolution, but even the, the leaders of the revolution. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I- I'm just trying to understand here something. Um, sure. Again, we here in Israel, we view it as our biggest threat. Yes. Okay, our strategic threat. Some people even go and say existential threat. Yeah. We look at what they're doing around us. <clears throat> are you saying, are you going to the extent 
that they're doing it all from a defensive posture uh, and that they have no intention of attacking us because we know that they've tried terrorist attacks and less on Israel, but they've tried them also, but also on Jewish targets around the world. Well, there's also the other end, which is like they could just be opportunists about it, right? Like they're not going to maybe go out and deliberately try to take down Israel, but if the opportunity would present they, itself. Do they, do they hate us? Would you say they hate us? I think they are anti-Zionists, but, uh, you know, the anti-Semite part, I'm not sure of that because, you know, there are Jews live in Iran. Right, and there's so still about 10,000 Jews. Yeah, and I'm not, I'm, I think that really they're anti-Zionists, they're against the state of Israel in so many ways and the existence of the state of Israel. But to answer your question, I have a question back to you. Can you tell me one event when the Iranians attacked Israel, not as a retaliation for something that they thought that we did to them? Well... I mean, I remember only about two years ago they fired about 30 missiles from Syria yes, into because the they, Golan. they responded on the death, or what they said, the death of the officers in Syria after we attacked them. Okay, and in, what about what about the uh, the bombing of the the Jewish community center in Argentina? Mm-hmm. After the death of Abbas Mosawi, the head after we killed the. So you're Abbas saying Mosawi. every single thing they do in their minds is in, a response to what in, we're doing. In their mind, they need to what we call they have some sort of an equation in mm-hmm. their mind. They want, like Hezbollah and Iran, the same thing. They want to get the equation all the time equal. And if we are ch- doing something that is changing this kind of equation, they need to push the equation back. If they could, would they want to wipe us out? If they could militarily and the U.S. wouldn't get involved, would they send over every troop they have and try to wipe us out? Let's take it to an extreme here. Again, it's very hard to imagine those things, but I think that in the end of the day, Iran has better things to send or better places to send the troops than not sending the troops. That's the, that the thing. And I'm, I'm telling you another story that really, again, illustrates what I mentioned. You know, in 2006, when Hezbollah kidnapped, kidnapped those two soldiers, mm. there was a real problems between Iran and Hezbollah. And why? Because Iran felt that Hezbollah is taking too many risks and is an important uh, ticket that really deter Israel from attacking Iran. Right, they were wasting their uh, okay. Yes. Their I, I have to come in here now because I'll say things that maybe the two of you won't. You come in here and I'm going to pour myself another whiskey. You, you might need one with what I'm about to say. It, it sounds like everybody that you probably work with or were associated with or, you know, academically speaking, are, are, are aligned with uh, at, uh, at Abiyam and, and, and other think tanks, understand Iran in this way, which is to say Iran is a threat. They're not an existential threat. They're not seeking our destruction actively, and we probably could be investing a lot of energy elsewhere if we could get down off of this posture of their our, our worst our worst uh, our worst threat. It seems, however, and I'll take the the I'm um, you know the everyman layman's thing. You know, we're we live in a very politicized society and it's been this way since I can remember and it's gotten worse every single day. And uh, th- this is not something to say against a polit- you know, particular political party or the prime minister or anything like that. It's, it's nothing about that. But Iran has played in this country and in the country of our birth in the United States a very, very convenient issue when you want to uh, garner support uh, towards you being a security hawk to say I'm tough on Iran mm-hmm. or I only I will protect Israel from destruction at the hands of the Ayatollah. Uh, and if you and say it, it, you have to say Iran. Iran. And, and it seems that the more that the general public 
doesn't understand the nuance of this issue, the better for the politician that wants to promote this issue as the issue of or one of the issues as to why they should be elected. So my point here, I guess, is at what point does it become a self-fulfilling prophecy or the threat of a self-fulfilling prophecy where if we're going to talk about the need to attack this country, at what point do we have to legitimize that with action, even though it may not have been justified in, in, in reality? Or at one point are the politics, I'll, you know, take, to take it to, the, to, to, to what I really want to say, which is at what point are the politics of this country being, being determined by the lack of um, awareness or, dare I say, uh, intellectual capacity to understand the complex, nuanced realities of which we find ourselves existing. There's a lot there to unpack. That's, that's a big question. That's a big question, but a very important one. I'll, I'll say a couple of things. There is a difference between in, in Israel between declarations and actions. At the end of the day, when you're looking what Iran is doing and what Israel is doing against Iran, they are acting in Syria because it's, I don't say it's easy, because, but it's a soft belly because the, the Syrian won't go into retaliate. So it's a low-hanging fruit. It's there. a low-hanging fruit. You're not attacking the, the Iranian presence in Lebanon because you're afraid that Hezbollah is going to retaliate. You're not attacking uh, Iran. There are things happening in Iran, but you don't take in any responsibility for that. It's, it's all, so, everything's under it the, it the level of seem, deniability. It also doesn't it, seem to cost very much. It, that's why. That's why. That's why. So in that sense, there is a gap between your declaration and thing you're doing on the ground because you don't want get things deteriorate. Why? It's not because you're really, I think that you are not afraid, you're really uh, think that Iran can pose you damage, but even more than Iran is Hezbollah. This is the main issue. If you take Hezbollah out and you take the nuclear issue out, then the ability of Iran posing a, a major threat of, uh, on Israel is become slim. Yeah, Iran becomes like Libya, uh, uh, Algeria. Well, uh, they have their like missile capability, but they, but it's, you know, we are 2,000 away and it's... Uh, 2,000 kilometers. Iran no, becomes uh, Pac- look, Afghanistan, uh, Pakistan. And it's, and it's very easy, even if you have advanced capabilities, 2,000 kilometers away, it's a challenge, even for Iran. So that's, that's, that's the important thing. Now, I read in the, in the newspaper today that the head of the Mossad wanted to retaliate and uh, after what happened in the Gulf and attacking their, the ship, the not Israeli one, the Israeli owned ship. An Israeli owned ship flying under a Bahamas flag was struck supposedly by an Iranian missile. Exactly. I think they said it was a mine. It's a mine. Probably it's a mine. It, but it doesn't well, did you see where the hole was in yeah, the hole? I, I it assume, didn't sink it. Listen, so. they didn't want to sink it if, yeah. because they didn't want to. They know it was how a to signal. Sink. It was a message. It was a signal. Yeah. Listen, so let's assume that... Um, um, we, uh, w- someone decided to take the head of the Mossad advice and attack Iran, for example. Then the Iranian and Hezbollah would retaliate. They have to retaliate. They have to retaliate. Right. So I think that Israel is playing a very delicate game here. Because even in Syria, tomorrow you can bomb in Syria, and, and even if you didn't meant it, you can kill some senior Hezbollah or Iranian guy, and then you are in all different situation. But I think the self-prophecy is an interesting issue because, again, returning back to, the, to Iran, I think that when you look in what you need to be done, you have, first and foremost, you have to clear the, the nuclear issue because taking the nuclear issue out of Iranian hands and uh, it would make it much more easier for Israel to cope with what we call the Iranian activity, malign activity in the region. Uh, but if you are 
keep when you say clear the the do you mean from our discussion or get it off the table get it off the table functionally by okay. uh, we'll talk about the agreement i think the, yeah. the, the probably the the only solution unfortunately why it's again we're talking about what you said because if not then maybe it become a self prophecy because if israel will continue to act against iranian nuclear facilities according to uh, other newspapers around the world saying that according to foreign sources for, for, according to foreign, foreign sources according to foreign sources then it, uh, then it, i think that in in the end of the day you'll find yourself in sort of confrontation with them but again confrontation with iran is not a frightening thing if hezbollah will enter <laughs> this kind of confrontation this is a game changer in so many ways yeah so we'll have to see no, they they've built develop. up quite the so, asset hezbollah has for, for those who are not aware Hezbollah has, it's estimated, well over 100,000, probably 120,000 yeah. by now, uh, rockets and missiles that can reach all over Israel and Iran, and they have been working over the past few years to turn them, um, and to make them more accurate. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're, they're bringing upgrade kits so that they can be precise, GPS upgrade kits. And if you remember 2006, you were here in 2006, the, the second Lebanon war, um, that's going to look like a joke compared to... I mean, uh, okay. What do the estimates say? That they'll be able to rain a thousand rockets uh, at a day least, on Israel? At least a thousand, of course, including those accurate missiles. Including uh, accurate missiles, which uh, means oil facilities, airports, yeah, everything. Okay, we, we got to pause because my head's about to explode. You're getting anxiety. No, I'm not getting anxiety. I'm getting angry. Have a drink. I'm getting angry. I'm at getting me? Angry. No, not at you. Okay. Not at you. I'm getting, I'm getting angry. You're getting angry at us? I'm getting angry at reality. And here's where my anger is from. I have endured the past, let's call it, decade of my life in this country hearing our leadership talk about the Iran threat and the danger of Iran to this, that po- poses to the state of Israel and how we must increase our military capabilities to defend against this. Hey, gotta have extra F-35s. Gotta have yeah. all these things, okay? And tankers. You don't need another hospital. We have need postured ourselves planes. towards great partnerships that we've now seen the fruits of in this region based on mutual concern over this, over this, over this threat. And as a voter in this country, and I remind everybody, we have elections coming up in, I think, Again. 20 days. <laughs> Again? Again. Yeah. No uh, by, by the way. Rock the vote, part four. I, by the way, I have no clue who I'm voting for this time. Yuvana Mifulba. No idea. I, me, either I'm voting for him or I am him. Okay, but I, have to get, I have to get to my anger. I have to get the source You're of angry. my You're angry. Go back to being angry. I'm a voter in this country. My family lives in this country. My friends live in this country. Why the hell is our politics here and, and our leadership fo- so focused on trying to make me afraid of the Iranian threat when the people that are working with this aren't, you don't seem to be too concerned. I mean, you're, you're cautiously concerned. You want to be ready. Yeah. But you're not like fearful. No. no. However, in the entirety of this conversation, we've been talking about some heavy shit here for a while. The only thing that managed to get you to be like, okay, you know, a little bit puckered up, like we should probably be concerned about this, is a, is the threat to the north. Yes. Yeah. It's Hezbollah. It is never seriously talked about in this country by the political echelon for more, I'm not talking about the military echelon, but the, by the political echelon for more than five second lip service. It is not there. It's not something <laughs> that I feel that they, I'm sure behind closed doors, they're very concerned about it. But I, I want to hear a politician come out in this election cycle and tell me what they're doing to protect me, my family, and my friends, and the economic stability of this country from that threat, because it seems that that's the threat. For, for those listening and not watching, Danny and I are both kind of smirking, and and shaking our heads like, yeah, 
Yeah, that's because, that no, because right. it's bullshit. I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> like, but and everybody that lives in this country, we yeah. live here. It's not like we're detached. Like we're like in America, hearing about the American policy in Iraq. Like we live here. We this is something that's important to us. And we talk about the threat of, of Hamas and in the South. It's like that's that's excuse me. That's like that's peanuts. like peanuts. yeah, it's peanuts. 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 It's it's you yeah. know it, why are people. I can understand why the politicians aren't talking about it because they don't have a good answer for they it. Don't. It's, it's the reality no. of it. Why are the Israeli people not more concerned about it? Well, you know what? Let me let me take that anger and channel it into a question. Please. Here. Okay. Do you think, do you think, and mm-hmm. I can give my take on this, but I'd like to hear yours first. Sure. Do you think that Netanyahu and and I say Netanyahu, but I'm not an anti-Netanyahu, pro-Netanyahu person. I'm saying this because just he's been in power for the past 10 years and he, he might be in power for another year or two. Um, do you think he truly believes, do you think he truly believes his own rhetoric on Iran, that it is an existential threat and that he's the only one capable of stopping Iran from destroying us and from getting a nuclear weapon? Or do you think he's using this cynically, like like uh, that would justify Benny's outrage here, um, to, to keep himself getting elected? Because no way do you elect a, a Lapid or a Gidon Tsar, or somebody who has no national security experience, when you have such a threat looming on the horizon? <laughs> it's a great question. Um, my answer is I don't know, but I tend to think that you really think that there are existential threat. I think you see the combination of is returning back all the time to the 1930s and the World War II and the appeasement issues of Chamberlain. And, uh, and he thinks it's this, it's the same thing, but it's not the same. And I don't know whether he's doing that because he don't know the facts, or we know the facts that we're ignoring them, or he's transforming the facts to and think facts getting being changed according to what you uh, your perceptions. I don't know, but I think one important thing related to the political scene in Israel is Netanyahu really transformed the Iranian issue to a left uh, or right issue in a way that if you are not if you are supporting an agreement with Iran, you're 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 like a uh, you're po- supporting appeasement and you are lefty yeah. and you are weak. If you want to counter Iran, then you are strong. But unfortunately, it doesn't go, it's not black and white. Right. And sometimes, and probably we'll talk about that, as I think, there is no other way to stop an Iranian nuclear uh, uh, program other than returning back to JCPOA. Well, an agreement. An agreement. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what kind yeah. of agreement it is. Right. That, and that's why it's so important. Now, the Hezbollah issue. It's a major issue because they are posing a real threat to Israel. Their capabilities are enormous. They are very, very strong. I'm not saying that they are stronger than us. No, I don't think so. But they have very advanced capabilities. And the and third Lebanese war, hopefully won't you get to that. You didn't say I don't think so very confidently. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. I, I, again, <laughs> I'm saying we are, the, we are still... Uh, Military superpower in the Middle East. Like they don't have airplanes, but, do they? But no, they, no. Which means, which means, by the way, that they can't invade Israel. Well, they, they probably will try, although without the tunnels coming. Well, we took away their tunnels they, last but, year. But, but listen, they have advanced capability that really, they will try uh, to find ways um, to uh, to overcome our air superiority. For example, they, yeah. for using, like, for example, surface to air missile and so. What would that look like? How would they actually try to achieve uh, to take out our air superiority? Uh, surface to air missiles, like they tried like a couple of uh, weeks ago against one of our drones. So they have this capability. Yeah, but taking out a drone is different than taking no, out the entire y- Israeli no, air but force. They need, uh, listen, no, but taking out an airplane is taking out an airplane. Exactly. It's all about perceptions. When we say drones, 
just so no, people I'm, I'm, I'm literally talking I, I, I'm going to let you say what you're yeah. saying but I'm talking about the actual at the end and of the day ability to make a dent so, not in the perception but to actually take out resources yeah. so, so are they able to take out surmountable amounts of resources or like can we expect wanna, that maybe they take in? out like two yeah. or three planes and no, then we listen, uh, first them up. there are two possibilities to do that first is really taking down a plane and this is will be a huge thing for Hezbollah it actually, I think, will have enormous impact also on our operational yeah. activity. You're not going to fly freely over Lebanon, yeah. Lebanese skies if you think that one of your fighter jets with a pilot or two pilots inside are going to be shot down. But that's one only one thing. The other things we turn back to the accurate missiles. Once they have accurate capabilities, they can shoot on uh, Air Force bases. They can shut down airplanes. They can shut so down air. Uh, they, right, can, exactly. they can turn runways. So in that sense, the war would look differently. And since they have the ability to reach every corner in Israel, so they'll have the ability to uh, to uh, hit any air, air base in Israel. Don't forget the oil facilities. And, and, and that's that's only the uh, the what I call the military capabilities. Again, you have also the strategic facilities in Israel, the like ga- the gas fields, like the, the gas fields. Like again, it all depends on what you're going to do. In, what Hezbollah is all the time mentioning, and Hezbollah in his speeches say all the time, that an eye for an eye. If you attack our airport, we'll attack your airport. If you attack our facility, our uh, energy uh, facilities, we'll attack your, yours. So, so the name of their game is basically uh, uh, let's talk deterrence. about Soviet-U.S. mutually assured destruction. Well, look, they they can't do anything positively against us. Okay, so this is important to, to what's their whole strategy? They go underground in bunkers, very complex system of bunkers. They have their missile capabilities spread out, even hidden in houses. Yeah. in South Lebanon or the retractable roof, and they can rain down <clears throat> they can rain down and use their capabilities to bother us enough until we leave them alone. But they can't do anything proactively against us. They can't they don't have tanks and planes to send right. over here and do that. So they can deter us, but but they have no positive have, achievement that well, they can they probably away. will have to do they will do two things. First they will try to that's what I call it <coughs> occupying the Galilee. Not talking about occupying the old Galilee, but occupying know, a city or a settlement, raising Hezbollah flag over there. It will be a huge achievement for for them. You a know, PR probably. victory. I'd PR be victory. Very happy to volunteer Kiretchmana. And that's what's one thing. God forbid. But also <laughs> they have, they have. Imagine he gets over there and he's like, "Oh shit, this is really what I did. I really want this. This, this is Israel. Israel. Come on. What? Where's the high tech?" <laughs> and they have the ability to use, of course, uh, drones, attacking drones, and that's uh, and it's like like a cruise missile in a way. Right. So, and they have, of course, the missile capability. They're very advanced. They reach every corner of Israel. They now have. But isn't it basically like a suicide mission for him at that point, though? I mean, don't we just basically destroy? Listen, in his view, again, we're turning back to the. Let's talk a little bit in a minute about Nasrallah notion, the raison d'être, the 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 essence, the, the essence of his of his existence in so many ways is securing Lebanon. If he cannot secure Lebanon, then he has no reason to be Lebanon. So that's the, because because of that, if Israel will attack Lebanon, he will have to retaliate and retaliate hard. Because for him, if you're not going to retaliate, then the, the Lebanese people will not understand why there is Hezbollah. Why do you need a Hezbollah why alongside Hezbollah? the Lebanese so national army? If you army, want right? to deter Israel, you need to play it. But do the Lebanese people really believe that pound for pound that Hezbollah would survive the next war with Israel? They need to survive long enough. Listen, when you talk about survival, it's not that 
at the end of the day, they won't prevent Israel from invading. In the, but in the end of the day, they could keep of launching rockets and eventually have sufficient manpower to rebuild the organization. That's a, in their view, they're looking about uh, how to, um, uh, they, to have... They, they, to have they win a, by not losing. Yeah, more, right. some sort of war of attrition in a way. That's yes. what they have in mind. And again, they can cause a real damage to our facilities, to our infrastructure. And it goes back to, the, to Iran. Why it go back to Iran? Because when people are talking about, I uh, heard Israeli politician talking about, let's bomb Iran. Let's preempt a strike and so forth. So the minute after the airplane is attacking I- Iran, you'll have Hezbollah attacking us. Yeah. Because, and that's, that's the big card that Iran uh, yes. has been playing, exactly. holding, holding in their sleeve for, for when we exactly. plan that. And add to that, now let's get to the agreement part of this. It's not really going to stop Iran's nuclear program. So let's talk for two minutes about GSCPR. We talked yeah. about Wuhan and why it's so important. So 2000, 2000 um, until 2014, because that's when I left the army, right? That's, there was the, the buildup, the negotiations led by America with the P5 plus one, we call yeah, it. Yeah, it even started before, listen. Right. Even before Rouhani, uh, talks started in Oman between the Iranian and, and, the, and, the, and the Iranian side, the American side. So so we learned. Yeah, so we learned. <laughs> By uh, some sort of a miracle. Um, but for our listeners out there, what they're, what they're implying is that uh, we were left out of the the conversation. You said it, not us. You said it's not <laughs> us, exactly. And, uh, but when Rouhani entered uh, his position, we said that he understood that we have to reach an agreement in the Iranian's view. Why? Because if he wants to strengthen Iran and the Iranian revolution, then you have to leave the sanctions. How do you leave the sanctions? You reach an agreement. He knew that. Yeah, more than from, that, from more than one. let me just add, he was both allowed to run, because again, their candidates are vetted. Yeah. He was allowed to run for president and he won the popular vote once he was vetted because it was perceived that he was the pragmatist that was going to end the sanctions. He said very interesting phrase during the campaign. He said the centrifuges need to operate, but also the economy needs to operate. So he created some sort of equation in that Did sense. he use the same word? Sorry? Did he use the same word? I'm wondering if there's a word play. The uh, Iranians love good word play. Yeah, I don't know. I wish I knew faster. Yeah, right. But um, we're turning back to that. So he knew that. So when he entered this position... He really pushed hard on agreement. When I'm talking about pushing hard, he actually forced the Supreme Leader to agree. The Supreme Leader was very cautious from the beginning. Um, he knew well, that what's he worried about, the Supreme Leader? Sorry? What's he worried about? He was worried that uh, two things. First, they will uh, give too many concessions. And second, that the American will use the agreement in order to infiltrate the mind and youth of the Iranian uh, population. Which, which, let's be fair, that was Obama's plan. Yes. <laughs> That's why I assume. <laughs> but, so, but it's really, we turn back, it, why it's so important to highlight? But, but because we're going to come to our days, then everything returns back. So, just returning back to 2013, so Rouhani it was a very hard negotiation because, again, you have to remember that the mistrust between the American side and the Iran side is Huge. There's a huge gap, cultural cultural gap, but also uh, interest gap. But uh, and even you know on a personal level, it was very hard to interact, especially when you have the supreme leader <laughs> pushing your back and looking what you're doing. So, but in there they they managed to reach an agreement. The agreement 
wasn't uh, the best agreement, but it was an agreement that really not stopped, but really pushed back the Iranian nuclear program. So can we, can we just uh, summarize uh, for some of our listeners here um, the, the highlights of the agreement, yeah. what it did do and what it did not do, right? Yeah. I'll start, I'll start by and, saying... And what does the acronym mean? Because this is a, a show of acronyms. Yeah. Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Sorry. You both spoke at the same time yeah, and sorry. it answered. <laughs> joint Comprehensive, comprehensive plan, of action. plan of Action. Nobody signed the agreement. It's important to say nobody signed. It's, they agreed on an agreement, but nobody signed the agreement. It was a joint plan. It was a joint plan. And uh, yeah, surprising. You're going to do A. I will do B. A. You will do you C. Do I will do C. Yeah. D. Exactly. We're going to do it at the same time. Yeah. So... I'll tell you that, what that was the idea. The pros and cons of the agreement. You're going to give me a barrel of cash. I'm going to stop doing what I'm doing for a little bit of time. And if you don't, I'm not. So um, I'll throw it in a rug. <laughs> I'm throwing a bag of pistachios in a rug. <laughs> Did anybody get a rug? I don't know. That would have been a nice gesture. I, bet you, I don't think they were I bet you John Kerry got a rug. He's got a house filled with Persian <laughs> carpets. So many rugs. <laughs> Interesting conversation. <laughs> you talk about rugs and then you run a nuclear program. It's the Jack Daniels. Yeah, yeah, I understand. He's got a lifelong supply of apricots now. <laughs> so Sounds like a good deal. Pros and cons of the George Comprehensive Plan of Action. So uh, let's talk about the pron. And, um, you know... Like I mentioned in the beginning, the Iranian counter a lot of uh, uh, events during their uh, nuclear program. Worms attacking their facilities like a cyber attacks. Uh, scientists died. Uh, Ran- randomly. Randomly. Scientists, uh, According to foreign sources. <laughs> but, the cent- but all these actions only, uh, they created, they, they had some sort of influence, but they didn't stop nothing. The, at the end of the day, they, uh, they, they, they put a lot of obstacles in front of the Iranians, but the Iranians are capable and they passed through these obstacles and managed to build centrifuges in two facilities, like I mentioned, in Matanz, but maybe the most important one in Fordo. Why Fordo is so important? It's underground facilities. Right? Because it's an underground facilities. Uh, underground facility, sorry. And um, so we couldn't stop the centrifuges from running. The run, uh, they, they ran, and the Iranian enriched until 20% uh, enrichment uh, capability or you know, percentage. And that's extremely important because the distance between 3% enrichment and 20% en- enrichment is, uh, is a long one, but between 20 and 90 is a short one. And 90 is really the weapons grade in uranium. Ren- uh, uh, so let's, uh, just for a second, there, there are three levels of enrichment, right? When you mine uranium, it's, it's a naturally occurring element, you mine it, you have to first enrich it to 3.5? At the beginning, and then... Three what, point, what does that mean, enrichment? Enrichment you, means... You, you find a rock in the ground. Right, so it's not pure uranium. Yeah. It's mixed with other stuff. So Dirt you have to clean stuff. out the crap yeah. that's not uranium. So you, you're putting into centrifuges, you're enriching it, okay? When you get to 3.5 whatever percent, that's a civilian power plant grade, Yeah. Right. Then you enrich it to 20%. 20%. And you're doing that by spinning it in a centrifuge yes. or many yeah. centrifuges yes. over time. Yeah, Exactly. What we call cascades. Cascade, you know, right. a lot of centrifuges together. And then... 20% is medical grade, yeah. research grade. What is that used for? X-rays, isotopes, okay. cancer and, and, uh, treatments. And, 20, and 90% is not only military, 
but also military. What other what other purposes require ninety percent in? And again, training? like when you uh, want to uh, build like a rods in your uh, uh, reactor, reactor. Uh, and so forth. So is that how the, you get the plutonium? The, the first in the, the arrangement one. Um, but again, they have the excuse. But of course, at the beginning, they want to do that in order to build a bomb until two thousand and three. So you couldn't stop that. So the agreement not only stopped it, but pushed it back. So the Iranian really dismantled Fodou completely. They used the centrifuges, or they want to use the centrifuges for what we call isotope production. Again, not uranium, uh, enriched uranium. That's really an important part, but not only that. Also in Natanz, they had to dismantle some of the centrifuges, and the others really enrich for nothing. Why? Because Iran was banned to, con- to, uh, to enrich and preserve the material. They had to blend it. They had like 300 kilos allowed, and that's really nothing, just to keep. And the rest is like the Sinjur Fuse is running for nothing. Then for reaching, a, what, was it for a symbolic purpose? Yes, exactly, because okay. the Supreme Leader was, it was important to the Supreme Leader that the Sinjur Fuse will complete, co- yeah. continue spinning, and that's it. Because it's a symbol. It's I, mo- can, I can just imagine that there's like a conversation taking place in the Tans between two guys working there like, can we shut this off? No, Supreme Leader wants it. <laughs> but there's nothing in it. Does he know that there's nothing in it? <laughs> Keep spinning. Keep it spinning. It's spinning. Now, the Iranian use... What by, by the way, there's an Iranian podcast I've heard called Persianst that uh, they talk about Come these on. issues. No, but that, how amazing would that That'd be? That'd be awesome if yeah. I ever see that. Now, the Iranian use what we call the IO-1 model. It's like the P-1, the Pakistani one, the Pakistani brought them, the Abdul Qadir Khan, the famous scientist. The Khan them, Network. Yeah, the Khan Network. But they manage also to build what we call the IR2M, the, it really the double the size of uh, the centrifuges. And the agreement really stopped that and forced them to dismantle the, I, the IR2Ms and also the IR1s, and they actually enriched for nothing. Not, not only that... How, how, much missile, how much fissile material had they built up prior to the agreement? Uh, I, I, mean, I don't remember, but it was like uh, hundreds of oh, thousands of kilos. That they had to clear from Iran, and actually, and, and they moved it, right? They, they moved it to Russia. Russia, from Russia really bought, bought that from that, but the Russian, you know, it's like uh, it's crap. <laughs> but, but but they bought it because they want to clear it from Iran, right? According to the agreement. Now, not only that, Iran was banned to do certain activities related what we call to the weapons group, and that's extremely important because, uh, the, like we mentioned, if you are not practicing it, you're not having the ability, even if you have the fissile material, to build a bomb. Right. So, and on top of that, they have really harsh monitoring regime by the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency. Exactly. That really made it. They really checked that Iran is really doing or, or fulfilling its part uh, of the agreement. That was uh, back in the back in the day. Was Mohammed Baradeh from Egypt? Yeah, he was. Oh, oh that was uh, back back in the day. Back in the yeah. day, and then uh, Yukiamano, the late Yukiamano, and now Mr. Grossi, but. Those really are the major pros of the agreement. But the agreement wasn't complete. Why? Because it has what we call the sunset clause. Right. It has like a time limit of 15 years and 30 years depends yeah, on... The different uh, parts of it. The different right. parts of the. That's one thing. And the other thing, the agreement didn't stop the R&D uh, capabilities of the Iranians. The Iranians were allowed, not on industrial level, but to practice other advanced centrifuges types, like uh, IR4s and IR6 and so, so forth. And that was a, another problem in the agreement because once you are mastering your capabilities, then you can build some sort of industrial capabilities in the future. And so 
and of, those were the, maybe the main problems. And of course, like Israel and other, and, uh, other countries said, it's only dealing with the nuclear issue. It doesn't relate to the, the missile program yeah. and, the, and yeah. of course, the malign activities in the region. The support for terror groups. Right? Yes. But again, each side gave something to which this kind of an agreement. The Iranians pushed the, the, their nuclear program back, and, but they got, the, the, uh, again, the sanctions were lifted. And why it's so important? Because Iran and especially Wuhani uh, had the ability to really to, uh, to b- rebuild the, the economy, the ruined economy of Iran. And Wuhani used that in order to be elected again in 2017. Um, he said to the, uh, eventually to uh, the population in Iran that uh, now they're really going to feel the tangible earnings of the, uh, of the agreement. But Trump came to office and things changed. And I have to emphasize one important thing. Even after the agreement was agreed, not signed, as we mentioned, the Supreme Leader stayed skeptical regarding the American intentions. And when President Trump left JCPOA, then Khamenei said, I told you so. And why it's so important? Because when we're turning back about today, Biden's administration returning back to JCPOA. In Kamenei's view, there is no returning back without first lifting the sanctions again. And there is no discussion about other agreement. First and foremost, the American administration need to lift the sanctions. So that's a major problem for Biden administration because I assume that they wanted to use the current sanctions in order to draw the Iran into a negotiating table and amend the problematic uh, things that we have in the agreement, like the sunset clause and other. There was also, uh, if I'm not mistaken, we couldn't just inspect anything we wanted. We had to coordinate it a month ahead of time. Not we, the, the international yeah, community. It's <laughs> like telling a drug dealer, we're going to come to your house in a month. Listen, you in, not one month in one month, we're going to come and check your den. And if you're making meth there, you're going to be in big trouble. So the, the claim was, I recall at the time, it was like, well, they're just going to scrub the place. And, and, you know, and you know if it was a military site that wasn't a declared yeah, nuclear there, site, listen, right? Listen, there, there was a couple of other problems. We can get into that. There was can, you, two, can you just mention them briefly? Yeah. So what you mentioned is important because the, the monitoring regime was based on, on uh, the, the essence of that the inspectors on the ground can do some sort of surprise checkup. Spot inspections, Spot right? Spot inspections, yeah. exa- exactly. That Tehran tomorrow we're going to visit some places, even if it's not, a, even if it's only military site and not connected to the nuclear program, right. they can visit. So the Iranian, they had a lot of problem with that. And they, and at the end of the day, it was very hard to uh, Iranian to agree to this, uh, uh, to this proposal or demand by the international community. Um, that's one thing, and the other thing is related to what we call the possibly possible military dimensions of the Iranian uh, program, and why it's so important, because it, in a sense, the Iranian didn't pay a price for the fact that they deceived the international community and tried to uh, build or try to acquire a nuclear bomb. Now, the international community demanded that from them at the beginning. They even wanted to interview Fakhizadeh, the late Fakhizadeh, but the Iranian didn't agree. So the international community decided that they want to look forward and not backward, and they didn't demand the Iranian to admit that they tried to do something. Now the Iranian, of course, said that the Supreme Leader issued a fatwa, some sort of uh, 
uh, a, a decree that uh, stated that it's forbidden to uh, manufacture nuclear weapons. Nu- nuclear weapons. Right. But so, of course, they can't admit that the fatwa was nothing or rubbish. So they didn't admit that. And why, again, it's so important because the, the Iranians didn't pay any price for what they did in the past. So the f- maybe they will feel in the future really secure to, do, to turn back to those deeds. I'm not sure, again, I'm not sure they're going to do that, but there is a possibility because they didn't pay any price for what you did in the past. So those are other problems that we had in the agreement. But again, the agreement wasn't the perfect one. It was, um, each side had to give some sort of concessions in order to reach an agreement because both sides knew that without the agreement, their life would be harder. Both sides. Iran knew that and Americans won. knew that because in the American perspective, you can't stop the Iranians from advancing nuclear, uh, in the nuclear program without an agreement. You don't want to attack in Iran. You don't want to do that. You, you know the implications are going to be harsh. And the yeah. Iranians knew... Attacking Middle Eastern countries has not worked out yes, so well for exactly. the United States. And the Iranians right? knew that without lifting the sanctions, there is a real jeopardy for, for the future of the regime. So... For, for internal reasons. For internal reasons. Yeah, yeah because... The domestic uh, uprising. Domestic, because, like we mentioned, beginning from 79, they feel insecure because they really conquered the revolution. So they knew the population won't uh, allow them uh, to, go, uh, to go without uh, getting the, the right or the tangible earnings from this kind of an agreement. So the, the, um, there was a compromise from both sides. They reached an agreement. The American decided to leave the agreement. Um, and now we're in a stage that the Iranians are really blackmailing the international community, doing activities that they didn't do in the past in their nuclear program, not because they want to acquire a nuclear bomb, because they want to show the international community that there is a price to pay if you if you're not lifting the sanctions. Right, so they're increasing enrichment. Increasing enrichment, returning back to 20% enrichment. Yeah. Rebuilding photo. They're doing also what we call the metallic uranium issue, that it's really another uh, step... Uh, in building a bomb. Again, not saying that they're doing that in order to build a bomb, but they're doing that and this is something that become it's a gray area between civilian program and a military one. And the Americans have, a, they find it hard to maneuver because they want to amend the, the, the previous or the JCPOA. They want to change the sunset clause. They want to do things, but in order to do that, you have to have some sort of uh, ability to press Iran to do that. You have to have some sort of a tool and the sanctions are a tool, but and again, the Iranians won't return back to the negotiating table until the American side will lift the sanctions. So we are in the stalemate. And we have to see what will happen it, in the future. Are the Iranian attacks against Saudi oil installations and against the Israeli-owned ship also a part of this Iranian pressure campaign? Mm-hmm. Definitely. So the Iranians, since the moment Trump administration left JCPOA, they, had, they were in some sort of... A, catch-22, because they were afraid to push things further in the nuclear route, but they wanted to show the world that they cannot accept the current situation. So what they decided to do, they're trying to show the world that there is a price to pay. So they attacked in the Persian Gulf. They attacked Saudi Arabia. They used the Houthis to attack in Saudi Arabia. They attacked from Iraq and, and so forth. Right. Because they wanted to show the world that, listen, even though we're not doing anything in the nuclear field, Rest assured, there is a price to pay. So that's the main reason. Now, after Trump uh, finished his, uh, finished his uh, term, the, the Iranians decided also to advance in the nuclear route because they want to increase the pressure on Biden administration to return back to the agreement. Now, if 
eventually the it's sanctions. It's all about who's got the upper hand here, right? Yes. Iran's saying, you relax the sanctions first, we'll come back. But it, but wait, and wait, wait, Biden's wait. trying to say, you come back, then we'll relax But, the but I want to go back a second to the, exactly. Trump, to the Trump administration because it seems like part of what's going on is You really want to go back to the Trump administration? I don't want to go back to the... Well, it, was, it was fun. <laughs> I, there's like... There has to be a tit for tat always. It's yes. like, you do this, I do that. But... Trump like whacked Qasem Soleimani and nothing happened. No, not nothing happened. I can tell you one important. First, the the death of Qasem Soleimani is really a game changer. Can can you just tell our audience, yeah, uh, those who are not Iran experts, who Qasem Soleimani was? Qasem Soleimani was the head of the commander of Quds Force. Quds Force was really was the force within the Iranian Revolutionary Guard that was in charge of what we call exporting the revolution. So actually, this force really uh, created. Uh, or transform Hezbollah to uh, to Hezbollah, you know, giving all the relevant aid, the military aid. That's one important thing. He really actually built what we call the Iranian threat network, the use of of militias in order to secure Iranian interest in the Middle East. But that Quds Force doesn't stop in the Middle East. He his aim is to protect every Shiite around the world. Doesn't matter whether it's South America, Africa, or Asia. So in Qasem Soleimani's view. He was really the true protector of the of Shia diaspora and the true protector of the regime in the Middle East that support Iran. Now, the death of Qasem Soleimani was a, a game changer. Why? Were you surprised? Yes. Shocking, right? It was shocking because I didn't, thought, I didn't think that uh, the American administration will do that because everybody knew the implication. And I, will go, and, 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 and the, 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 I would have to tell you regarding that, that the... Uh, the Iranians still will, ret- I think they will tell it in the future, and I'll tell you how, what's my assessment. But just so people understand, this is a probably the most popular figure in Iran. Yeah. The most revered he figure. He was like the number three guy. Again, well, officially no, but unofficially yeah, yes. Yeah, unofficially number uh, three. Again, re- remember that um, he was an important guy, but people tend to exa- exaggerate, like people tend to exaggerate the importance of the Middle East in the Iranian view. It's important to say. You know, people thought they're going to be president and so forth. Qasem Soleimani was an important guy, commanding an important unit, but he wasn't the most important guy in Iran, and he had his own problems. But the death is important because he really was the connector between Iran and what we call the militias, the the Houthis, the Hezbollah, and the PMF in Iraq and so forth. And why it's so important because Iran capabilities to act in the Middle East after Qasem Soleimani's death has become weaker. And if and when we'll counter Iran in uh, in Lebanon or other places, the fact that he's not there, his vacancy will have a significant implications and uh, and, the, and will have a significant implication, especially on Iran's ability to support its militias if and when they will encounter Israel. So it's extremely important uh, issue. But again, Qasem Soleimani wasn't the most important uh, guy in Iran. And yet... There wasn't a so uh, like I, I remember watching that I believe it was in the uh, the news came out that evening or it was the morning I don't remember but I remember watching the headline come on TV and I kind of was like oh crap yeah like uh, <laughs> do I have enough water in my mamad sort yeah. of situation like and for people aren't aren't familiar mamad is like the bomb shelter like do I have it's enough here room. that yeah, I can like be cool for a couple of days because the electricity might go out? and then and then nothing happened yeah. it was like how again, do you not retaliate it's against that back to how we see Iran when again I told you Israel 
doesn't need to be or mustn't uh, be the spearhead of confrontation or opposition against Iran. When the when the American did this activity, then who the Iranian is going to retaliate against Israel? Or Hezbollah is going to retaliate against Israel? Maybe. No, they're not because they're not. Again, if Israel would attack Qasem uh, Soleimani, things were different. Probably the rules, probably uh, things could have gone uh, higher in uh, in our uh, relations with Hezbollah. So, but it didn't happen. The American attacked him. So, if the American attacked him, it's an issue between Iran and the U.S. Do not they connect- do they see it that way also? Because yes. they, in our view, we are seen as an extension of America. Yes, but again, returning back to that to that. Even if they think that an extension, even if they claim that we supported this, this uh, the killing of Qasem Soleimani, or the assassination, depends where you're sitting, they knew that the missile who struck him was an American one. So you, you can't retaliate against Israel. Because, again, if you retaliate against Israel, you're doing it without any cause, and then Israel can, retaliate, uh, can act against you. And like we mentioned, the Iranians think highly of Israel capabilities. They, like Hezbollah. They know that we are strong. So the, the retaliation issue is an important one. So first, the, the, the Iranian retaliated against uh, the military and Assad base in, uh, in Iraq, and they shot, and, uh, I think, maybe more than a dozen missiles. That, uh, they didn't uh, kill any American soldier, but they first and foremost signaled their willingness to retaliate. But it does not end in that. My sense is that in Supreme Leader's view, the ultimate retaliation to Qasem Soleimani's death will be when the American side will leave Iraq. That's why we'll keep seeing the, what we call the popular mobilization uh, front, the PMF, uh, or the Khajda Shabi, the, the Iraqi uh, militias, supported by Iran, continue to act against the U.S. presence in Iraq. This is something that won't stop. And this is a major problem of the, uh, to the American side because they don't want to resend troops uh, to Iraq, but they'll have to cope with that. So the, uh, my sense is that the, Iran, the Iranians will keep pushing on the Iraqi militias to act against uh, the presence of the American soldiers in, uh, in Iraq, and it won't go into end. And it will be, again, it's opposing a real uh, uh, threat to the American presence over there, and we'll see how things will develop in the future regarding that. So, so, so I kind of want to try to, Dan, unless you have something that you want to ask, I, I kind of want to try to circle the square between where we've been just now in talking about this element, the JCPOA, and the perception of re-entering the JCPOA amongst regular people that walk around every day, both Be- in the United before, States. Before we get to that, so yeah, before we get to that, I, I just wanted to, to, to clarify this conversation that we've been having. And I recall back in the day, uh, the JCPOA was signed kind of right after I left. Uh, it wasn't the, signed. Not signed. It was <laughs> the JCPOA wasn't signed right after I didn't leave the not military. Um, but but I remember I came back for a reserve duty a couple times, and, and you know uh, I st- still stayed very much on top of things. I recall from conversations with a lot of my former colleagues who at the time were still active. The within the system within Iran experts and foreign policy experts within the system. Okay people who couldn't publicly talk to the press. We were generally okay with the JCPOA. I wouldn't say excited about it, but the mood, and correct me if I'm wrong, because you were still in the system uh, and, and you were literally the, the expert on this, right? That was um, um, The mood was a lot, I don't want to say excited, but it was a lot more sober 
uh, certainly not as doomsday about the JCPOA as it was in the public discourse or as as perceived by the political echelon here. Yeah, I tend to agree on that. The reason is when you're looking at the Iranian um, nuclear program, you understand one important thing. It's too big and it's too vast to do anything other than reaching an agreement. Well, they, they learned the lesson from Saddam they Hussein. They learned the Iraq. lesson from Saddam Hussein. It's too scattered. It's not in the same place. It's not a reactor. It's like a underground enrichment facilities and so right. forth. So they, they knew the, the job because, you know, they're they are sophisticated. And you know they, that... They invented in, chess. And yeah, and, and you know that the most important thing, my sense was, and is still today, that again, if you take out the nuclear issue by using by the agreement, then it's much easier for you to cope with other deeds of Iranian of Iran, right. like the nucle- like like the missile issue, like the malign activities in the region. That's do, what I thought. Because do, do you think we should not be concerned about the nuclear program? No, I'm saying we uh, we should be concerned, but I think that we need to support an agreement, a reasonable agreement, that will allow us to close this file in a way, meaning that we are we stopped uh, the Iranian nuclear program. They cannot enrich 20%. They cannot, they, if they want to acquire a uh, military capability, then they have to do a lot of bad things. And, and it's, it will be very hard for them to do, that, to do that under the agreement, under the monitoring regime. And once you clear that, then you feel much more free to act against other deeds that they are doing. Yeah. Because if they will, you create this kind of linkage, then think to yourself, you will attack in Syria, and then the Iranian will enrich to 20%. That's the, the wrong thing to do. Right. So returning back to what you said, my sense when uh, back in the days, and I, th- and I think that um, a lot of uh, military or other experts thought that, that we also need to look on the positive side of the JCPOA, right. not only the negative side. Again, it's not a complete agreement. It has its faults. I'm right. not saying it's it's a it's a complete agreement. I'm not saying it's a perfect one. I'm saying it has its fault. But given the state of the Iranian nuclear program, I thought to myself, I'm still thinking today that it's the only solution to stop the the Iranian nuclear program from advancing. Well, it also seems to, in, in the context of being the only solution, it it seems to be that at the end of it, and, and it was coming to an end eventually, there would be another agreement. It wasn't like there's going to be the the, the end of the JCPOA's sunset clauses, and then we're you know there's going to be a war. Well, so it was, I mean, it had to be. There would uh, have to be another agreement. It's a flawed agreement. And, and I think that that this is where we're coming towards what I was asking before, ma- which yeah. is that most most uninitiated people, when they think about this, especially if they're staunch supporters of a strong American foreign policy in the Middle East, you know, quote unquote strong, or or very hawkishly you know pro-Israel uh, people, it, it's it's more of a matter of who was making the agreement? It was yeah. the Barack. It, it was it was Barack Obama, the Obama administration, or now the Biden administration. Right. Uh, Trump withdrew because Trump has the best interests at mind, you know, in, in, yeah. in mind. Yeah. Uh, if we're re-entering the agreement, everybody wants to make sure that that President Biden understands that it's a different Middle East and the, the Israel has has new and powerful allies in the region, and and it's not the same. And I, and I'm not saying these things aren't important, but it seems like what I was always confused. It doesn't seem. What I was always confused about was, if you're against the JCPOA, what are you for? Yeah. And, yeah, and yeah. many people would say, exactly. well, I'm for a better agreement. Okay. Yeah. But other people would, would kind of leave that open-ended and blank, and it was like, 
what are you suggesting? Well, here? That we should go to war. It's a it's a reactionary type of viewpoint that you get across all things. It's like I'm against this. Okay, whatever yeah. it is, right? I'm against it. Okay, so what are you for? Right? You can't you can't just have your identity being against things. Well, I, I think that some people, uh, and, I, and I'm I'm afraid not few people, but I think many people that were against it that wouldn't give you a clear answer saw it in the context or 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 in the same sort of a. Um, a view as they would see, you know, the U.S. fought World War II against the Nazis, and we draw these parallels a lot. The Iranian regime, absolutely, like yeah, absolutely, and 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 therefore, if the U.S. put all of its might, and I watch a lot of documentaries, and I know you do, and you watch Ken Burns, and it's like, you Love know, you, Ken Burns. you put, you know, you put a, a million five uh, U.S. soldiers fighting the Nazi war machine on, on boots on the ground in Europe. It's like, okay. Yes, I, I guess if you wanted to commit the entire power of the United States to take down Iran, you could take down Iran. Yeah, but like, is that what you're advocating? No, I have to say two things regarding what you said. The important, the important sentences that you mentioned. First, the question is, what's the alternative? So we talked about the military one. We talked about the the problems that you, if you choose that, then you have the, you know, the knowledge that they still have. You uh, you have Hezbollah retaliating. You have this and that, and that's a problematic option. So people tend to think, okay, continue the sanctions as they are, and uh, at the end of the day, that you will, they will, came to the decision point whether they want to preserve the regime or continue the nuclear program. Make, make them have to choose. Yes, but it's unfortunately, uh, we tried this option and we failed, because in the Iranian view, they're willing to starve, but to hold the Iran, the nuclear program. Not saying acquiring a nuclear military nuclear capability, preserving the right to enrichment. Because in the eyes of the leader, Iran leadership, if they will dismantle this program, it will show that they are weak in front of their own audience. So therefore, they lose legitimacy. They're politically vested in the program. Exactly. So there is a consensus in Iran, even regarding the, the what we call the the, uh, the left wingers in Iran, really the true uh, reformists over there, that everybody thinks that Iran entitled to have a nuclear program, a civilian one. And to be fair, they do, just like any other country. Yeah, and, and they're signatories of the NPT, even though they violated yeah, exactly. so, a whole bunch so, of and, and one other thing that I want to highlight is the different views uh, between the U.S. and the Israeli administration regarding the sanctions. In Obama's view, as I see that, and, and, I'm, and I met with those who negotiated the agreement, and I think that they're a very competent guy. Ben Rhodes? No, he didn't negotiate. He didn't negotiate. We met the others. No, no. We met with the actual people who actual constructed people. it and negotiated it. And, that, and, and that you can say a lot of things about they're them. They're very smart people. And they're not stupid. They're very smart people. Very smart people. But in their view, you are using the sanctions as a way to force the Iranians to reach a nuclear agreement that will stop the advancement of the program. That was the real essence of the sanctions in Obama's view. And of course, preventing Israel from acting. In Israel's view, as I see that, the real meaning of the sanctions is to cause a regime, a regime change. Because eventually, what you think that if the situation in Iran will be bad enough, then you'll see uprising. And you saw some sort of, you saw things happening in Iran. Things are not quiet in Iran. Still today. It's even today. Yeah. So th- this is the different views. Now, it's returning back to Biden administration that I think, again, when push comes to shove, they will have to forgo sanctions in order to return back to JCPOA. But in the Israeli sense, it's, it's like uh, appeasing Iran because you have yeah. to preserve the sanction. And, and the, this, these different views will cause, I think, in the near future, some problems 
in the connection between Washington and Jerusalem. I'm shocked. You, you know what? I'm going to throw this out here. I th- I, I'm willing to bet that if, you, you know, and I was even concerned he was going to do this. I thought Trump was going to, he canceled the deal or he, he pulled the U.S. out of its side of the agreement. And, and I was convinced there was a lot of talk about this, that Trump would come back and get Iran to come back to the table and reach some kind of agreement with Iran well, that, that would not, it would have either been the same as the JCPOA worse than JCPOA. or even worse, but because it was Trump, yes. it would have had the legitimacy. And by the way, he said it again two days ago yeah. at CPAC. He said, if if I was reelected, I would have been, I would have signed a deal with Iran within the, fir- within the first week of my presidency. He yeah, said, yeah, within the first week of my presidency, there would be a new Iran deal. Yeah. And 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 the details of it would not have mattered. Would not have mattered. Yeah, it's the same thing goes to North Korea. He just won the photo op. Do you think? Do you think? You know, we, let me let me ask you two yeah. questions real quick here. Sure. Do Do you think Obama, not the administration, because I met also with the senior people who were dealing with the Iran file in the administration, and they were serious people. Do you think Obama himself understood and internalized the threat? And the 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 radical nature of the Iranian regime, that's one. Two, do you think he went soft on pushing back against Iran in Syria and against regional aggression, in order to keep the JCPOA alive? So I'm start with the second questions. I, I think the answer is yes. In Obama's view, the most important thing was reaching agreement regarding the nuclear program, and he was willing to uh, forego. A lot of activities that Iranians have done in the region in right. order to, to Send reach... Send pallets of cash. Yes, in order to reach this kind of movement and the, and the pallets of cash and everything because in Obama's view, and then back to the first question, I think Obama really understand the true nature of the regime. But you, you think he did or did not? I think he did. Did. That's why he, he thought that there is an imperative, in order, a real necess, necess, necessity in order to reach an agreement because... The radical regime of Iran, together combined with nuclear capabilities, this is something that the, the American administration cannot accept. So he thought that he thought two things, as I see it, of course, uh, my, sure. me myself sitting here, that first you reach an agreement that will take out the nuclear card, and then there won't be any American attack on Iran. That's the most important thing. But the second thing that he thought he can capitalize on that and use the agreement in order to push Iran to the good side. Meaning to to make it a normal country. A normal country and work together with Iran on a, and issues like yeah. Syria, like Iran. Right. So, so to Iran. work together with those yes. people that we talked about before that saw themselves as exactly. joining the international like community. Like Qasem Soleimani, he really thought, in my view, that he really thought that he can work with them in order to uh, transform the Middle East to become a safer place. Do you think he was naive? Regarding the second options? Yes. Yeah. Uh, the, the, regarding working with Iran, definitely yes. Because the supreme leader, listen, it was very hard for the supreme leader to accept the fact that his dele- his delegation, his people are sitting with the American administration uh, in direct talk. talk. It's something that he, he talked about the drinking the 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 glass of poison, the poison, uh, the, the poison glass, chalice. Yeah, the po- yeah, right, yeah. Whatever it was, because for him it was really unthinkable. Because of that, he knew that if you if you allow. Um, people in the administration, to continue working with the American administration, then you, you will lose grip on that. Yeah, that and creates an opening exactly, for those people to exactly, then legitimize their exactly, relationships with the United exactly. States and to not give them up and, and exactly. to want to open that window more and more so and more towards normalization. I think Obama was naive on the second uh, question, but on the first question, I think that he knew 
that he has to reach an agreement. This is the only way to stop the, the program and the only way to secure that the American would need to attack Iran in the future. So it's a calculating move, you think, on his yes. part. Not a naive move, but a calculating move. Yeah, again, there are people in the administration, I think, like uh, Secretary Kerry, I know that really were maybe a little bit naive. But, yeah, I think so too. But, uh, but again, if you turn back to how we see Obama in general, in, in, in the Israeli population, Israeli, uh, again, we tend to left and right. Uh, if, you are, if you think that Obama was a good president to Israel, then you are appeasement, you are lefty. You're right. And, and it's, we turn back to that. So The misunderstanding the, of Ob- who Obama is, was as president, especially in relation to Israel, is one of the biggest uh, misconceptions that still goes through, through most of Israeli society today. Definitely. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I've talked about this many times in different lecture formats, and I always say, I don't think he was especially pro-Israel, okay? Uh, I think Biden is, by the way. You know, Biden is kind of one of these, we, we talk about having Israel in their kishkis, you know, in their in their guts, like having this innate pro-Israel, like love of Israel sense, this American Zionism. I think Biden's there. I think the Clintons were there, okay? When even we're talking, and, and certainly among Republicans, most Republicans are there. Um, I don't think Obama was there, but what people don't seem to understand, and you know, people always go to okay, it's either black or white, it's either you know you're for or against. Okay. Obama wasn't anti the plague Israel. of our time. He was not anti-Israel. He was not actively pursuing anti-Israel policies. He just wasn't deeply pro-Israel like we're used to American politicians being. By but the way, Dan, he didn't block the veto. He didn't block the veto. Look. That's a whole different issue we'll get into. I don't want to get into it here, but you know, you can go back to presidents like like Eisenhower and Nixon who also weren't pro Israel, right? So it's, you know, it's like the, the you know the, I didn't like the history the of pro Israel presidents is not that I, I I think that ultimately it's just kind of a, it, it I'm taking a deep breath. I think it's silly. I think it's incredibly silly. I think and that every night in my neighborhood there's something that sounds like a gunshot. Do you hear yeah, same thing? Fireworks. So you think it's fireworks? Yeah, fireworks are for perm, yeah. Those are freaking yeah. loud. Yeah. I, want, I want some to play with. But, but I, I want to tell you something about the moment. The problem that Wait, can, Obama can I, had... Can I, can I just finish my... Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. So yeah, I, yeah, I just yeah, want yeah. to say, it, it, it seems like people are children and they need to grow up. <laughs> <laughs> no, but for real. It's like, you if you can't... Forgive me. If you can't see... <laughs> you are forgiven, my that child. Complex, <laughs> if you can't see that... That issues that are so complex and nuanced, <laughs> such as the relationship between Juanced. allies and enemies, are not super always completely black and white. Like, well, this is the big <laughs> challenge of our times. And this yeah. is, look, I'm not always popular for voicing these opinions, but this is how I make my living by voicing nuanced opinions. But, but it's like, okay, <laughs> so Obama doesn't love. Israel. Oh, that means, not, Obama, that means he's a Nazi. Obama. If Obama Nazi, was right? was Jewish, he wouldn't be making yeah, Aliyah. Meaning Barack Hussein Obama. Yeah. Hussein. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah. so, what Absolutely. is there? Is there productive cooperation between the two economies? There was. There he passed a three point eight billion dollar arms year. package each year. Each year for ten years for Israel. Yeah. How many jobs is that? Mostly American, but a lot. A lot. Yeah. A lot. No, the thing is, Biden Obama, I think that, you know, we turn back to the veto, that he thought he's really helping Israel. Yeah. Th- he this didn't look, think that he's doing that to support the Palestinians. He thought he's really helping Israel. This is what I explain to people. Uh, t- Obama had a whole list of very close, very senior Jewish, <coughs> excuse me, advisors. Okay? 
Rahm Emanuel yeah. and, and Axelrod and all these people in Ben Rhodes who, who you can disagree with this and that's fine. But they believe, they believe, and many Israelis believe that the settlements and, and, and the control of Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, is harmful to Israel's future yeah. as a Jewish and democratic state. I don't have to agree with that. And, and this is something that enrages me in Israeli society. Let's have the debate. Let's have two different debates. One, they don't hate us. Okay, let's first of all, let's put that. It doesn't mean they hate us. It means that they love us and they think we're doing things that are harmful to ourselves. Now, we can disagree with that as a democratic society, We and we do disagree with that because by and large, the voters who put the government in power disagree with that. But to, to, to not be able to recognize that it comes from a place of support rather than a place of hatred is just, it, it, it's beyond infuriating. Well, I, can, I can remember how many times I, I was just passively listening to you having arguments with people over whether or not Bernie Sanders was an anti-Semite. <laughs> <laughs> but, but for real, like there, there was a, there was a feeling that, that he, you know, was, is he legitimately pro-Israel or not? Yeah, and and it and it became a very difficult conversation the, because look, people are not able to understand the hubris. The hubris in this country, um, uh, among many many Israelis, I'd say even even a slight majority of Israelis, that says if you, it's like if you do not support the construction of the third temple and and you know the greater Israel from the Mediterranean to to the Tigris and the Euphrates, that means you're not a Zionist. And, and you know what? Kudos. To if you're not a Zionist, you're an anti-Semite. And if you're not a Zionist, you're an anti-Semite, right? Exactly. And and by the way, I'm not I'm not I'm not saying I'm a supporter of Naftali Bennett here, but he said something very important in the political discourse the other day in a in a great interview with with uh, Times uh, of Israel. Times of Israel with my friend Chaviv Redig Gore, uh, who we got to get on the show. And, and he said, I have many friends who I served with in the military who are leftist, and they are no less Zionist than I am. They are no less patriotic than I am. We need to get this, you know, for or against. You know, you're either right wing or you're a traitor. We need to get this discourse out of our country, and I absolutely support him saying that as a leader of the right wing. Yeah, and yeah, one you know. one important thing that we need to highlight regarding the role of the American administration in the Middle East. You know, in the past, Middle East was an important area. You know, oil issues and other issues that related to Israel, and uh, they were way, were highly invested here. But Obama, even Trump, and I suspect Biden. Obama, oh, exactly. Yeah. I, in the future, they're going to leave the area, not living in a sense that you won't find any American soldier here, but they will focus on other areas, like pivoting to Asia, yes. of course, like the COVID issues. And Russia. And Russia, of course. Yeah. So my sense is, my assessment is, is, right after they will return back to some sort of an agreement with Iran, we'll see them investing in other areas. And we need to be prepared for that. I agree. Because you have Russia in, in your... Uh, the front yard or backyard depends how you see that. You have China maybe entering uh, the Middle East, m- not only on the economical issues but also political issues and others. And we need to to uh, prepare for that and to understand that in the near future, uh, the American administration really focus on other issues. Right, they're, they're trying to get out of the Middle East. They want to wrap up this Iran issue. Um, exactly, it's not a priority for them, and it's being forced as a priority for yes. them just because yep. of the urgency of it. But uh, but it is I, absolutely not an issue. I, I would just say two things. One thing on on that subject is that I I was thinking about it in the car on the on the way over here. The U.S. has been in Iraq now since sorry in Afghanistan now since two thousand one. It's twenty yeah. years. Yeah. 
which means that there are literally soldiers fighting in Afghanistan who weren't born on 9-11. That's a crazy thought. Yeah. Um, and, That's a crazy and, thought. Yeah. And, and number two, uh, I want to congratulate the three of us. Uh, I was trying to time this. Two hours and 11 minutes went by without mentioning COVID. And you said COVID, and that's it. That's the longest conversation I think I've had since the pandemic has begun with two other people before COVID came into the conversation in any way. I'll and be honest with you. It's not interesting. It's not interesting. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm done talking about COVID. The only thing I have about COVID is people who peddle in conspiracy theories. And by the way, you mentioned at the beginning in how, how people in the intelligence community, uh, for, you know, and in, in conspiracy theories. Okay, I, I, you were in it for a lot longer than I was. Okay, but but I spent a good eight years in 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 that community. All of the, this talk about conspiracy theories, it is such garbage. It is so hard to keep in a democratic country. Okay, with the free and very active and very critical press, it is so hard to keep secrets. I don't believe ninety nine percent of the conspiracy theories. Maybe a hundred percent of conspiracies. I think just because. Having kind of been on the inside, it's just, it, you just don't understand, people don't understand how hard it would be to have a conspiracy theory and get it to work within a democratic country. Well, I'd love to hear your view on that every time you hear these kind of theories. Uh, I mean, being uh, around. Yeah, I think they'll see with our crap. <laughs> but uh, I want to tell you one, but one important thing regarding that. In the Iranian issue, the intelligence officer in Israel needs to cope not only with the intelligence ch uh, challenge, but also the political one. Yeah, that's a big point. Because it's a highly politicized issue in Israel, when you think differently, you need to speak out your mind. And Do we? Uh, and Do our intelligence officers speak their mind? Uh, I, you know, when I was in office, yes. I don't know what's going on today, but I hope that they are doing that. And it's extremely important. I'm not saying that... The intelligence officer is always right. I'm not saying at the end of the day, the politician need to decide, not the intelligence officer. But you need to detach yourself from the political aspect of the Iranian issue and really say what you think according to the intelligence and your assessments. Yeah. And in other issues, maybe it's a little bit easier. In the Iranian issue, it's harder. But I'm, I'm sure that I'm doing so, but it's very important to mention it. Iran's coming up to an election. Yes. When is it? March? June. June, sorry. Yeah. Iran's coming to an election in June. What, what's going on there? Do, do we even know? who? Last time I checked in on this issue, we didn't know who's going to be running. Do we know today? We still don't know. Um, again, it's an important issue because there is a question whether the American administration need to rush to reach an agreement while Wuhan is still in office. Or mm. wait for the next one. Or, or wait for the next one, but the next one can be a con real conservative. So we don't still don't know there are possible. Do you, do you think that the American administration has the ability or the energy to reach an agreement, in, given the, the 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 current uh, political realities in the United uh, States uh, and the current issues facing America? I think they know that they have to. I think that they wanted to focus on other issues, but because Iran is really blackmailing them, they know that it's crush time. Do you it's, think that in the ninetieth minute? Well, here's an interesting question. Do you think that? Probably because of the COVID-19 issues in America, the press won't be covering the re-entering or new Iran deal as you know th they might have in the past. Does yeah. that make things easier? Um, I Maybe, but the real problem is not the press. The real problem is the Republican side. Mm -hmm. And I think that also Democrats that think that uh, you shouldn't appease 
the, the Iranians. So it's an issue. It's a huge issue, political issue, but I think that still Biden has, it has his political strength. He just entered office. He has like the, the, the Democrat Congress. But I think that if he wants, if he'll reach an agreement, he will be able to uh, persuade at least at the Democratic Party that they need to return back to the agreement. Mm-hmm. And again, you have the issue of the election. I think that they want to capitalize on the fact that Wuhan is still there and have the ability, some sort of ability to push uh, this agreement forward. And in June, there are a couple of options. There are the more conservative options. People like uh, Dai Khan used to be, for the RGC, they used to be the defense minister of the first in the first term of Wuhani. You have the head of the, the, judiciary. the judiciary council, a guy named Raisi, Ibrahim yep. Raisi. He ran against uh, Wuhani the last time and he lost. He's incredibly he's, conservative. He's incredibly conservative. He was supported by the Supreme Leader. And he, this guy is being mentioned as maybe one of the major candidates to replace Khamenei in the future. What, what about the rumors of Mojtaba Khamenei, Mojtaba. Khamenei's son? So before we get into that, because this changing the presidency, or changing the president in Iran is important, but changing the Supreme Leader is crucial. So one other uh, possible candidate is Ali Larijani. He used mm-hmm. to be the speaker of the Majlis. He, he was... The speaker of the Iranian parliament. Yeah. yeah. He, he was, at the beginning, a, a conservative, a very right-wing, so-called conservative, but now it become more Wuhani-type... Uh, pragmatic. Pragmatic, conservative, pragmatic. And I think that if he'll run, he, he's got good, good odds. Again, we have to wait until they would declare, and then we have to see the polls. And maybe the most important thing is how many people will come to the polls, because... I think that there is a sense of despair in the Iranian public. We saw that in the Majlis election. And if people won't come to elect, then we'll meet a conservative president. So we go for full, full circle here. Well, but before you do that, just real quick, how ma- what's the voting percentage usually when Iranians have elections? Do you recall? I don't know. I think probably between uh, 60 and 70%. Okay. But, but again, it also depends where people are going to vote, from which areas, from which ca- counties and so forth. And you have more radicals and more conservative and more reformist or more moderate. But again, the question of the elections will be decided probably by the percentage of people coming to vote. And just want to touch what you mentioned about the Supreme Leader. Now, the Supreme Leader is, uh, is ill. Uh, again, nobody knows when he's going to die, but... We've been talking about that forever. Uh, for, forever. And what's, even, he, what's he got? Sorry? What is his... It's not COVID. It's not COVID. He used to have uh, cancer in the past. How old is he? Um, I don't remember. Above 80. About 80. So he always yeah. above 80. Okay. Um, but the thing is that um, the man who really shaped Iran as it is today is not Khomeini. It's Khamenei. He really built what we know today as Iran. The RGC, the strong RGC... Uh, the, 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 the position of the president and so forth and so forth. From him... If, like people, w- if people are confused, the, the founding supreme leader is Khomeini. The current supreme leader is Khamenei. It sounds yeah, very similar, exactly. but uh, just so people aren't confused. So, but again, he called all the strategic shots in, in Iran. When needs to decide on the, on the nuclear agreement or whether to uh, attack Israel or whatever... He needs to give the green light. When he will pass away, and I have strong feeling it will happen in the future. 
<laughs> well, then at one point or another, <laughs> almost a certainty. Yeah, yeah, almost certainly. Willing to bet on yeah, it. Willing to bet on that. Uh, within within the next year to 30 years, yeah, exactly. it will definitely happen. It will significantly change Iran. I don't know whether to the worst or the best. So here, here's the question I was going to ask. We established early on in the conversation that Iran's presidential candidates have to be approved before they're able to run. Yeah. Uh, so, so it's, you know, when, when people ask the question, is Iran a true democracy? The answer is almost yes, but if Iran was a true democracy, would the revolution still be supported? And is, is, or, or is it like this is a, a fail safe to make sure that it the doesn't an, go away? The, the answer for that is no. The, the, if we had like Iran was like a true democracy, if, then if, they had, if, if these elections no. in June were free and open no, elections, no, 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 that's why they're doing the vetting and then so forth. They, the Absolutely, is no. The, the majority because, of the public does because not we, support. Yeah, because we started saying even in the in the Iranian Revolution, the it, it wasn't that they were deposing the Shah to establish an Islamic Republic. And exactly, and it still is today. But it does not say that you find themselves all the time in the street shouting against uh, Khamenei. They are that, now. They are, but not in a way that the regime know, know for now, the regime know how to handle it. So I wouldn't bet on, on revolution in the near future. Again, nobody knows. We discussed that. But let's assume that they're uh, able to sustain the regime for the near future. Now, changing the supreme leader is a huge issue because whoever will be the next supreme leader will change Iran. I don't know, again, I don't know in, in which kind of uh, direction, but it will change Iran because Iran today is Kamenei and Kamenei is Iran. Once you will... It's go, him, it's his cronies. It's, it's cronies, his, it's, it's the he, structure of yeah. the regime. Everything is Kamenei. His loyalty is... Does he his successor? Um, it's an interesting question. We had only one transition uh, in the Supreme Leader transition between Khomeini and Kamenei. And even then, although they have their procedures, things close behind the scene. Asami Rasanjani, the late Rasami Rasanjani, really elected Khamenei to be, uh, to be a supreme leader. I suspect there will be a turmoil over there. Yeah. Because, again, if Khamenei will choose a successor, it become easier, but I'm not sure he's going to do that. Because it, supreme leaders tend not to <laughs> select the successor <laughs> because then they know what's going to happen. But uh, my sense is that there will be a turmoil. Turmoil from, there will be, first there are the possible candidates like his son Mujtaba, like you mentioned, Maybe Rouhani will try to run to office because he's a competent and he can play the relevant uh, structure in order maybe to uh, to acquire some sort of uh, support, especially if the president will be Larjani and so forth. Nobody knows. Actually, there is some uh, thought they're going to change the regime totally and they won't have like one supreme leader. They will have like a council leadership council uh, yeah. uh, that will combine from the uh, supreme leader, the president, and the speaker of the majors. Maybe. I don't know. But I know one important thing. And, and that's also connected to the nuclear issue. Kamenei was the guy that instructed Fakhizadeh to build a nuclear bomb between the end of the 90s and 2003. When he agreed on the JCPOA, actually knew that in his lifetime, you won't see a bomb. He knew that because, again, you can't... In the current state of affairs of the Iranian nuclear program, it, was very, it is very hard to reach an, a, a bomb. And he knew that once he's stopping it and, and pushing it back, he knew that the dream is over. If he, even if he preserved the dream, the dream is over. Once he's dead, then everything is out in the open. Whether to return back to the nuclear route and suffer, but return back in order to acquire this kind of capability, or 
foregoing that completely. Everything is, is up for grabs, so we'll have to wait and see what will happen. And when Khamenei will die, it will be a significant event in the Huge. history of Iran. I want to say, uh, I want to give a point and then ask you two questions. Um, you know, something I remember we've, we've always talked about is that the original revolutionary generation, so the generation that lived through, uh, and, and if people aren't aware, um, immediately after the Islamic revolution or the revolution and the Islamic takeover of the revolution, right, 79 through 81 really, um, Iraq, Saddam Hussein's Iraq attacked Iran, mm-hmm. and they fought a massively bloody seven, eight-year war against each other. And um, the current younger generation doesn't remember and, and is probably not nearly as committed to the revolution as was the original generation. Okay, so their willingness to suffer for the cause, my sense is, is a lot smaller than the older generation's willingness to suffer for that same cause. Um, and, and that's part of the calculation of those who say we can bring about a regime change if we increase the pressure, et cetera. Uh, I want to ask you two, two kind of overriding questions here. Um, does Iran want a bomb or does it want to be a threshold state? One. Two. If it achieved a bomb, do you think what what are the chances that you would ascribe to it using it one day on us or on another country in the region or on the US should it have the capability to do so? Two great questions. First, I want to connect the the first one to uh, what you said about the Iran Iraq war. In the the first years of the war, Iran was closed close very close to losing the war. They got panicked. I think this is one of the major reasons that Kamenei decided to acquire nuclear capabilities because they were very, very close to, to, be, to collapse. So that's what back then. I think that what happened since 2003, that Kamenei understand that if you try to reach for a bomb, you will pay a costly price. A price that maybe the regime cannot sustain. So my sense is that he forgo the willingness to acquire a bomb. But what he had in mind is keeping on building the nuclear capabilities for two reasons. One, preserving the option for future generations. That's why they had the archive. Just to preserve what we achieved, maybe in the future we'll try to do that. I'm not saying the, that the archive that Netanyahu exposed yes. on live television. Exactly. Yeah. The, this one. And the other thing is to create some sort of a nuclear deterrence by pushing to what you call threshold. But yeah. I'm not talking about threshold that you are like you have the bomb and you just need to uh, adjust no, no, the no. screws and that's it. Threshold in a way that you have nuclear you have enrichment capabilities, you have maybe a, a reactor working. You have maybe the fissile material. And you have the missiles. And you have the missiles. And to bridge that, you still need like a, a year, year and a half, maybe two years. But your enemies probably think that you have this kind of capability. So in that sense, I think this is the ultimate goal. Not reaching for, in common eye view, until 2003, he wanted a bomb. But since then, the pressure and the sanctions and, and of course, the technical problems that they had, that they, had they have in trying to acquire that, he understood that the ultimate goal is building the capability, building some sort of 
uh, deterrent through this kind of capability, but without achieving a bomb. He knew that. That's what I think that's why he agreed to the JCPOA. Now, the second issue is whether, again, it's very theoretical one. Of course. I, my sense is that if and when the Iranian will acquire nuclear capabilities, military one, meaning a bomb, they will, um, I think they will want the world to know about that. Because you, you have to get some sort of deterrence by showing your capability. Again, this is my assessment only. I don't think they, the, 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 they will, the second step is just taking uh, the missile, uh, the, the bomb and put it on a missile and shoot it against Israel. But what they, I think maybe they will have in their mind is using their capability in order to build some sort of international ability to push Israel on, on the political stage. But not only that, preventing Israel from attacking in Syria and Lebanon and so forth. Not by saying that if you attack, we'll attack you by nuclear weapons, but know that you have our capability. Yeah, the, the escalation can lead exactly. not to you know, this level, but it can ultimately lead to this level. I'm raising my hands up exactly. and down and, for, and, those, for and, those listeners. And, and returning back just one, one sentence to close well, this issue. Well, just yeah, to close this issue and that's it. Regarding that. Well, I have follow-up. Uh, okay, no problem. Yeah. Just go that. Iran is not a suicidal country. It's a realpolitik country. Absolutely. And that's an important thing to say. And people tend to, again, Holocaust and they want to destroy Israel and nuclear issues and so forth. When push comes to shove, they think about to secure the regime. And they know war with Israel is not something that they want to reach. Maybe they will find in the end of the day, finding Israel not because they want to, because they think that the only way to preserve their regime. But they are not suicidal and they are very politic and they are taking the decision in order to secure the, the regime for future generations. So let me then go to the kind of devil's advocate here, okay, and take it to the other extreme. If they don't really want a weapon and if they had a weapon and wouldn't probably use it, again, we're speaking theoretically here, and if they had a weapon and probably wouldn't use it against Israel, why do we care if they have a nuclear program? I think that, again, that's a good question. I think that, uh, first, it's a given. Even if you don't want to, it's a given. Nobody will dismantle this program. It's a fact of life. The American, the first, you know, people tend to think that the Iranians forgo everything that they had because of the sanctions, so we need to continue the sanctions. But in Oman talk, in Oman talks, the first step was made by the American administration when they acknowledged the right of enrichment by Iran. Once they had that, then agreement was up for grabs. So this is a given. So we have to cope with that. Now, in our view, what we want to do is we want to prevent Iran from mastermind the, uh, the action that can lead to a bomb. Because if you don't have independent or, uh, or do you, you do not think that you are able to reach a bomb because you didn't master certain steps, then you won't try to do so. So I think that what we're trying to do is prevent Iran from acquiring these capabilities. Now, enrichment there, they will have an enrichment, but leave them in IO1s. Don't let them yeah. be enriching out. Yeah, they, they will they will turn around, black it. Don't let them build a reactor in Iraq. Uh, for though, dismantle it. So you have you to take some actions that, acknowledging the fact that they have uh, a nuclear program, but they, no, they do not have the ability 
to transform this civilian aspect into a military one. How much, let's, let's put it this way. There's a lot of talk, uh, not just talk, we, we've discussed for a long time now the, the understandings behind what the, what the calculus is on both sides. How much does it come down to the personality of the leaders at the end of the day? Or to put it in other words, how much does the intelligence community's understandings and analysis of the situation impact the prime minister's or the president of the United States' decision in how they're going to handle the, the particular issue or threat? And how is that communicated to them? I think that, like you mentioned, at the end of the day, it all depends on the personality. There are, look, eventually, the intelligence can help decision makers, but it does, it does not take the decision uh, instead of them. And so the intelligence needs to know its part of the decision-making process. Now, it depends. Now, there, are, there were like prime ministers that thought highly of the intelligence, and there, are, or there were uh, prime ministers that thought that the, the intelligence is important, but it's not the most important thing in the decision-making process. Why it's so important? Because in Israel, the intelligence is extremely important. And in other countries, I think like in the US, the intelligence is important, but at the, at the end of the day, the leader needs to take a decision not only based on intelligence. Yeah, there's so many other considerations. Yes. That's why you know. when, you, when you're coming, look, when you're coming, let's assume I read in the newspaper that the Israeli delegation will present to the American delegation new evidence on the Iranian nuclear program. Great, excellent. But I doubted that it will have any effect on the EU and on Biden administration willingness to return back to the agreement. Why? Because they think that it doesn't matter what's in, in the intelligence, the most important thing is block the Iranian nuclear program. So the intelligence can be important, but it won't, it, it will aid decision makers, but will not make the decision in, in, uh, instead of them. And my sense is that the, the administration will turn back. It doesn't matter which kind of intelligence will be brought to him. I mean, in respect to, and in relation to what you just said, it's like you can see how, how utterly absurd it must have felt being in the American side that was trying to negotiate this deal when the prime minister showed up and spoke in Congress against the Iran deal because it's like that's not where this decision is going to be made. Look, I think you're, you're, you're speaking to your electorate in Israel by being here. This has nothing I, to do I with think, us. I think the problem was, look, the agreement, as I mentioned, has its, had its, its problems. I think that Israel very early on decided that it won't contribute to an agreement. It will foil an agreement. Now, it returned back to the same um, issue that we have today. Israel needs to decide. Because if we'll get involved in a negotiation, and maybe we can influence the agreement to become a better one, we can help the American side to find the places that the Iranians can't, can uh, give some sort of concession. But it all depends on whether you want to contribute or not. You can stand outside and shout, Iran is bad, Iran is bad. But what will happen? The, there will be a new agreement, and then you won't be able to act in Iran. Because you, won't be, you won't have a seat at the table. You'll sit at the table. You yeah. won't be able to do anything on operational level because the, the American administration will not allow you. And, yeah. and, and I don't think that Israel will do something without the backing of the U.S. administration in Iran. 
So you can find yourself, yeah, you'll be like the head of the opposition, but you won't get any influence on how the Iranian nuclear problem will be shaped in the future. So again, the same dilemma that we had then, we have now. I don't know what, what we will and decide. I hope, I hope we learn those uh, lessons. I, I hope that we learned the lesson. I'm not sure. I hope they learned the lesson. I think that we really need to, um, to invest and to seek ways to support the current administration in his, uh, uh, when he's tried to return back to the agreement. I think it's crucial because we really can help him shape the future of the Iran nuclear program. It is vital that we'll have a seat near the table, a virtual one, of course. I agree, I agree. Um, we, we have a, a question here, a nice question from one of our listeners. Stephen Barron asks, if Iran is not interested in a bomb, why are they blocking inspectors from inspecting certain sites? I'd like to think you're correct, but I've seen no reason to expect them to be rational. First, uh, why they're blocking? They're blocking because it's a part of the endeavor to push uh, the American administration to attend back to the table. Uh, they think that the monitoring regime is something they can play with in order to show the, the international community there is a price to pay if you're not returning back to JCPOA. Yeah. That's one thing. Regarding the rationality, again, those who said they're not rational, please tell me one incident sure. that they attacked Israel, not retaliated to what they attacked Israel uh, deliberately. And I don't think you find it. Why you won't find it? Because, again, they know that if they will attack Israel unprovoked, then the other day Israel will retaliate. Yeah. This is a dangerous thing. They will do that only if they, uh, if they feel like we're turning back to the equation issue, that Israeli changed the equation and right. they need to rebalance it. Right. And, and, and frankly, they also just don't have the capabilities to get into full-out conflict with Israel, yes, which is why listen, they always keep things at the level of deniability. And again, if you, and, and, and I'm going to highlight that again. If you are uh, taking off the Hezbollah issue off the table and the nuclear one, and it's, you leave only Israel and Iran, the ability of Iran to cause pain to Israel is very limited. Very limited. Yeah. And that's an important thing to sure. say. You, you wanted to bring in uh, uh, an interesting article that's been going around the right. world. So, really. so and, and Dan, I'm going to let you give the perspective uh, on this, but the article is uh, is an article that Michael Oren, our friend Michael Oren, and Yossi Klenalevi co-wrote uh, last, sorry, in, in, in January. My, Michael Oren, the former Israeli ambassador to the United States, a noted, Historian. a noted scholar of the Middle East, the history of the Middle East, and Yossi klein a well-known public intellectual here in Israel. Right. Uh, the case against the Iran deal in the, in the Atlantic, the case against the Iran deal reviving the JCPOA will ensure either the emergence of a nuclear Iran or a desperate war to stop it. And I think your comment before, and again, we have lots of respect for, for, for Ambassador Oren, is just, you know, what, what, what is he getting at here? Or, or, you know, he should know... Yeah, I mean, I read this article, and it just seemed like a lot of hyperbole. Um, there were uh, uh, claims in there that, um, you know, Iran never took apart a centrifuge, never... I, I can yeah. actually I can actually find find the um, the quotes here, because... Um, I know this article. Listen, there are a couple of problems with an article like that and other articles. First, they do not describe correctly the content of the JCPOA. Second, they do not know the Iranian strategy regarding its nuclear program. They actually don't know that. They assume that they want to acquire, they want to achieve a bomb from the moment they started the nuclear efforts, and it's not true, like we mentioned. Here, here, this, this is this was the the highlights. If I can wrap up the highlights of that article, just so people know, and I think it, it I think it sums up a zeitgeist here. Okay, 
Under the terms of the deal, this is kind of uh, what was written, not one nuclear facility was closed, not one centrifuge was destroyed. Wrong. In fact, the deal allowed Iran to upgrade its centrifuges. And and if you recall, this is what I called you, right? Yeah. Um, And these new centrifuges can enrich uranium faster. Yeah. So everything... It's just not correct. First, it's not correct. And second, let me ask uh, Ambassador Oren, okay, what's the alternative? Right. What's the alternative? Back back to that question. Yeah, listen, okay, so they they continue building, advance the capabilities. They will master, there are two M, there are four, there are six, there are eight, there are 1,000, whatever. Right. And then what will, it will will find it very hard to stop them. Now, again, I'm not saying that even without an agreement, they will try to reach an Obama. No, but they will acquire a very important step and capabilities along the way. And you don't want to get them through this path. So I think the deal uh, that I mentioned before, the only way to block this advancement. Now, people like my, again, I have the f- highest respect for him. But again, he's talking uh, someone that didn't read the articles even more than that, he doesn't offer any sort of alternative to an agreement. Yeah, and, and that's my problem with, uh, well, again, not uh, specifically criticizing Michael Oren, um, who I also ha- hold in high respect, but but this kind of zeitgeist, and this is, I think this really wraps up the public sentiment. And this is what, where the, I'd say most of the Israeli public and, and a good half of the American public, uh, that's where they lie on this issue. And it's missing two key things, three key things. And I'm getting this from what you're saying here. One is that it's just not correct, just factually not correct, or maybe even if the specific facts are correct, they're taken out of context within the understandings of the deal. And from my understanding, Iran held up its end of the deal until the Trump administration pulled out of the deal. One. Two, what do you propose? Because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, you have to do something to get them to agree to halt their agreement, right? Exactly. I mean, so you, you can dream up the best possible scenario that you can dream up, but at the end of the day, it has to be limited by what the Iranians are willing to agree to. And, and the third, I think the most important point, and this is what I hope the Biden administration is aiming for, and this is what I hope we... Uh, in Israel will push the Americans to do is that, okay, let's get back to some kind of agreement and then use that as a platform to extend the agreement, to close those those sunset exactly. clauses. Exactly. Right? This is what they're trying to do. And I think that, again, Israel needs to support this kind of endeavor by the administration. Look, I really have a dream that tomorrow wake up and see there will be like no enrichment facilities, no reactor, nothing, and then everything is fine. But it's a dream that will remain a dream. And then Iran the, joins the Abraham Accords. Exactly, but the reality, listen, the reality Please. is, the, the reality that the, these installations... 100,000 Israeli tourists go yeah. to Tehran in the first... Yeah, nice, 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 good food, that's for sure. Amazing. If there, we, we, by the way, we have listeners in Iran. Uh, by the way, I want to say something we, about... We have listeners in Iran, huh. and if you're listening to this, okay... I don't know if you're from the regime or if you're not from the regime, then you're listening to this, okay? If you make peace with Israel, okay, you will get such a huge boost to your economy in the form of tourists (laughs) flocking to Tehran immediately, okay? 130,000 Israeli tourists went to Dubai in the first two months of the agreement, and that's with COVID. So just imagine the economic potential. I want to say something about missed opportunity between Israel and Iran. Now, I'm not saying, again, we're talking about Rouhani. He's not a Zionist. Uh, he's anti-Zionist. But I think that 
after the agreement, he was in his peak. And he was re-elected, beating Raisi, the, the candidate supported by Khamenei. And I think that we had, of course, the, we have good connections with Oman. And I thought that, and even was mentioned in one of the reports, that maybe the Iranians really asked to create some sort of connection with us. Not to open embassies in Tehran and Jerusalem, but to create a discourse that is not through the lens of the pilots. And I, th- I think... I'm, What do you mean by that? In a way that the discourse between us and Iran today is by bombs. Mm-hmm. Bombs and attacks. This is the only discourse that we have with them. Yeah. I thought that we really lost an opportunity to create some sort of a dialogue with Wuhan. Again, not to reach a peace agreement. Not but peace, to, but a kind of you back but, off, but we back off type of agreement. To better understand the interest of both sides. You, you think they were doing that? You think they were reaching out and kind of... I think that, you know, it was... Maybe not an olive uh, branch, no, but, it was, but it something... It was published that the Omanians offer that. Yeah. And, and uh, when Caboose was still alive. So I think that... Why it's so important? Because the agreement, as its own, it was, I think, when we're talking about regime change in Iran, so we tend to think about a revolution, people getting out of the streets... And the, the, the Supreme Leader is uh, running away or, I don't know, committing suicide or whatever. But there is another option, that the change in Iran already started within, within the conservatives. And I thought that, for example, Rouhani is bringing some sort of wind of change, not towards Israel, but towards wh- where Iran needs to invest. You need to invest in Iran, you need to invest in the relations with, in, in the Asia, and what we discussed previously. And I think that Once the Trump left the agreement, it really weakened Rouhani in a way that I'm fi- I find it very hard to see that him uh, running to the office of Supreme Leader. And we lost the opportunity because I think that Rouhani is bringing a wind of change within the regime itself that really can change the focus on the regime. But unfortunately, uh, for now, we lost the, this opportunity. So, so you think... The Obama administration generally, forget the details, and the details are important. I'm not discounting the details. <clears throat> but you think the Obama administration had the right idea of get something on the table, engage, strengthen the moderates, or the pragmatists in this case, and use that as a building block? You agree with that? Yeah, I think so. Again, not by working with the regime on the Middle East. We thought it, we told... Right, uh, that, we talked, that was it, a it's a, it was a naive thought, but... Yeah to support those who want to change Iran from within. Mm. Not abolishing the, uh, the Islamic revolution, but to change the characteristics of the Islamic revolution. And I thought that changing that will really bring Iran to uh, a different future, to, f- to invest even more on Iran itself and not on its proxies, for example. Are, are, there, are there elements within the regime who could take over maybe elements within the IRGC um, who have a different priority list in which uh, harming Israel is one of the top priorities? Yeah, there are those elements for sure. But I think that even if there will be some sort of a military coup, assuming that the Swindler will die and then they want to prevent Ohani from uh, uh, taking office, um, even, when they, even if something that happened like that will happen, I think they will have to invest first domestically. Israel won't be on top of their priorities. I don't, I, again, this kind of situation is very alarming, and it can happen. I'm not saying it's not, 
But I think that uh, in, in the near future, even if something that, that will happen, they will have to invest on domestic issues, not on Israel. And we'll have to see how things will develop. And then we turn back to what we said. Uh, when Kamenev won't be in Iran, things can happen in a dramatic way for the good and for maybe for yeah. the bad. And to go back to what I said earlier in the show, we should probably be a little bit more publicly concerned with what's going on to our north in Hezbollah than we are about the question that you just asked in, in terms of the public discourse and its immediate consequences in Israel. Yeah. It's, it's connected. obviously connected. <coughs> However, it seems to be that the consensus in this room at least and in the community is that the more immediate and greater threat uh, at the moment seems to be Hezbollah. The military threat, for sure. The military yeah, threat. The absolutely. threat that, that no has question. a direct impact on our lives, the lives of our children yes. and our businesses. And no our, question. And our no question about it. Stability. Yeah. Totally agree on that. It's a very right. optimistic thought, isn't it? <laughs> we always like to, to like to kind of conclude on a on a on a high note, and that obviously wasn't it. <laughs> <laughs> but I tell you something about again about Hezbollah. One encouraging thought that um, Hezbollah is very strong military, but politically, he is becoming. Weaker and weaker every day because of the current political situation in Lebanon. Which is, Lebanon's gone to shit. Yes, I mean, and he's losing, li- listen, he was, Hezbollah and Nasrallah himself, they really mastermind the structure of the Lebanese uh, uh, state. So behind the scene, Hezbollah controls everything, but in front of, uh, you know, when you're dealing with Lebanon, you're actually dealing with the Lebanese state. Right. But controlled by Hezbollah. This structure collapsed. It started in the end of 2019 when Hassan Diab government uh, had its problems. Continuing this year because of COVID, the, the economical issues and the, the, the political problems in, in, uh, in Lebanon, they can't form a government until now. So this is forcing Hezbollah to deal with the domestic arena in Lebanon. Which they never wanted to deal which with. Which they never yeah. wanted to do. They want to focus on the false buildup, uh, especially against Israel. Now, this is opening very interesting venues in order to create some sort of influence that really can harm Hezbollah's uh, role in the Lebanese state. Now, I'm not saying there will be a dramatic change, but maybe there will, there will be a, some sort of a change. So we need to think we, international community, those who really care about the future of Lebanon and those who oppose Hezbollah, how to exploit the current situation in Lebanon to our benefit. And there are things that you can do in order to influence that. So I'm not saying, military-wise, they're very, they're, they're very strong, but politically, things can change, or things are changing, and those changes are not to Hezbollah's benefit. Well, there, there was, was it last year, a massive blast, right, that destroyed like half of Beirut. Yeah. Uh, do we know what that was now? We, again, it's... Or who's, it, who's responsible? It, it looks like it wasn't really directly connected to Hezbollah. But... For, it doesn't matter because it really what this exploded cause is more frustration on the political on the on Hezbollah position. Yeah. It seemed to be that it was the, the people of Lebanon look at that as just look at the incompetence right. of our exactly. government. Yeah, yeah. Situation. The neglect, government right. and, and Hezbollah is of course is, is connected to the government itself. Yeah. So Hezbollah is really even without the, the blast, this situation was dire politically. I'm not talking not not military. And after the blast it become more uh, more problematic, to say the least. Mm. And uh, we, we'll, we'll see how things will develop in the future, but I think that there are interesting events happening in uh, in Lebanon right now that 
uh, if be used correctly, they can really harm Hezbollah position in the country. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, enlightening, I would even say. So we usually end on a, on a positive note. We should end on a positive note. We should end on a positive note. We definitely end on a positive <laughs> note. Um, I would... I usually try to ask some sort of a, I don't know, like a, like a, like a fun question or something, books that you're reading or, or TV that you're watching or, or, or things like that. But I think that in this particular case, um, I'll, I'll try to stay on the, on the, on the topic here. If, if you could wish for a good outcome here, yeah, what does it look like? Uh, and, 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 and I'm, and I'm saying like go post COVID. Okay. Yeah. We're looking at 20 years down the line. Where are we? Where is Iran? Where, what can we expect of this uh, in an optimistic perspective? L- let me throw in realistic. Let me throw in a, a part of that. Actually, um, something that I was going to ask earlier. We've been kind of throwing around a phrase in Israel here. Um, I've even said it myself, and, and when I think about it, I realize you know what? I haven't fully thought this statement out, and this connects to your question. Biden needs to realize that the Middle East is different today than it was four years ago. The Abraham Accords, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What does that mean? Okay, practically, we were just as aligned, just quietly, not openly, with the UAE, Bahrain, and Saudi Arabia as we are today. Practically, Iran was just as much a threat as it is today. So when we say... Biden and the administration need to realize the Middle East is a different place today because of the Abraham Accords, and he needs to take that into consideration. What does that mean? I think that we really... Uh, the, the Abraham Accords are an important one. But like you mentioned, I think we really... Some sort of exaggerating them in the, in the Iranian content. Because uh, I do not think... that We have, of course, we, uh, you mentioned that we walk behind the scene even before the Abraham Accords. I think the ability of those countries to publicly support some sort of, let's say, military action or something like that against Iran is very minimal because you, you visited Dubai, right? You saw that in a clear day you're seeing Iran. And why it's so important? Because unlike us, that we are 2,000 away from Iran, the UAE, Bahrain, other countries, they are very close to Iran. That's 40 kilometers That's away. 40 yeah. I'm not saying they, they also want the same, the same the thing that we want. They want to see Iran weak. They want to stop nuclear program and so forth. But I think that they truly understand that in order to acquire this target, you need to think of other means, not only the military ones. Yeah. That's regarding the, the other call. Now, regarding um, what you ask, I think that in 20, 20 down, the, down the road, I think that I will close it by just talking, we talked at the beginning about the Shah and all so forth. I think that I'm optimist in, in, in a way that I think the, the Islamic uh, regime in Iran is the anomaly. And at the end, and it will, be fi- it, will, it will find it very hard to sustain itself in the near future, or say the foreseeable future. Why? Because... Like you mentioned, people are, the young generation won't be connected to the West. They forgot probably, most of them or the youngsters forgot the Iran-Iraqi war, didn't know Iran-Iraqi war. So I think that they have other things in mind. When we're going to see that come into play, I don't know. It can take five years, ten years, maybe it will will happen next month. I don't know. But my sense that 
we are so similar in so many ways to the Iranian people that at the end of the day, down the road, somewhere, we're bound to have some sort of connection. Now, it will take some changes within the, the political sphere in Iran, especially regarding the Islamic uh, revolution. But I think that we are, will be able in the future to return back Iran, to push them back to the family of nations. And uh, I'm pretty optimistic regarding that. I'm not sure that um, we won't find ourselves in uh, interesting uh, places with Iran and Hezbollah because the tension is really high, as we saw just a couple of days ago. So we can find ourselves in a confrontation with Iran. I'm not saying not. But looking lo- uh, down the road, I think that I'm quite optimistic that we'll, uh, we'll find a way uh, to work with uh, the relevant people in Iran, the moderate one, uh, to, and push Iran back to the good side. And I actually am curious, what, what are you reading these days? Any good books? Any good, uh, <laughs> any good uh, TV shows you're watching? Um, there are so many good series. Uh, these, uh, you what, know, what are you into? Uh, they have the policeman one, the, you know, the Naria one. What the uh, uh, the cops it calls a chote- a uh, the, the cops you know they're talking about Naharia and the, the events happened there like no. ten years ago. Well, yeah. It's like a documentary. No, it's like a series, a real series. That's that's one thing that I'm watching. The second one is very important and very interesting. Uh, in Netflix, they you have like a World War Two series that everything is in color. So uh, World War Two in color. Yeah. Yeah. I watched two, it. Yeah. And that's very interesting because I'm really, a, a, I won't say a fan of World War II, no, but I'm really interested. Huge fan. Yeah, no, huge fan of that. Good times. Yeah, exactly, yeah. But I'm really interested in, in, in the events happened over in, in, in those uh-huh. years. And I think that um, watching it in, in a color, it's giving you a really interesting perspective of uh, events happening over there. And uh, so I'm really, uh, I think that uh, I, I can say that those who have Netflix and have the ability to I'll see this kind of check it out I think uh, I think that uh, it's important series to see and it's very interesting one while seeing that in colors fantastic awesome Dan, thank you very much yeah this has been awesome yeah really awesome I, I I feel a little bit better coming out of this podcast than I did going into you it should I think I should. I think that we all should. But you I should feel worse about his bullet. I think I should feel worse about his bullet, but I think that people should. I think that people should breathe. I think that people should relax a yes. little bit. I think that people should uh, vote wisely in the upcoming elections. And and, and and you know something that we mentioned, and and it's not just connected and, to Iran. And, and if you don't vote wisely, there'll be another election. Well, you know, voting wisely is in the eye of the beholder. Correct. Exactly. Um, which which means saying that is never going to get us anywhere. Um, no, just something kind of a, a bigger takeaway that, that I, I have on my mind often, and it's connected to Iran, it's connected to this conversation, it's connected to you know something that happened two weeks ago when we've all forgotten about why didn't Biden call Netanyahu. For those in Israel, okay, can we just calm down? We're not the center of the world. We're probably not even the center of the Middle East. Let's just calm down. Let's just be a little more humble. Let's tone down the hubris and, uh, and, and, and take a deep breath before we respond to every little you know, Saturday Night Live skit or every little thing that's happening in the world. Let's just, let's just take a deep breath. You know, there's a new, there's a new and, scandal. And, and, and let's stop being so vain that we think everything is about us. There's a new scandal brewing. Uh-oh. What's that? There's still no ambassador. Oh. 
You know who it is? It's gonna, no. It's going to be me. <laughs> Complete silence and crickets. Yeah, exactly. So, gentlemen. That was awesome. Um, thank thank you. you so much, everybody listening in, everybody who's going to be tuning in. Join us next week on Juwants, where we're going to get into some Israeli politics ahead of the elections. Good times. Nice. Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Pfefferman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced.